Hey, you just joined us, we're talking to uh, Midge Meister, who wants to go and see Prometheus on Thursday night at w- one minute past midnight. Yes. So technically Friday morning at one minute past midnight. Yes. Is that is that right? Yes. Why? Because I have to see the first showing because I'm really excited about it. <laughs> and I, I, I always, whenever I Ridley go, Ridley Scott the, loves you. <laughs> whenever I go to the don't, cinema, don't beat him down. His life will grind this enthusiasm out of him oh, eventually. <laughs> You can't do that for a while longer. Yeah. You I mean, hold on to that dream. <laughs> hold on I to wish that. I was as excited about anything as Midge is about Parisian. <laughs> <laughs> as Midge is about everything, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And about everything. Now it's Persona 5 right now. Fantasy life where everything is awesome. Actually, to be fair, that's the one thing. Me and Leah, Persona 5. Yep. I, mean, I went to the cinema to see... That's what it's called. Resident Evil 5, the movie. (laughs) I went to the cinema to see Resident Evil Afterlife three times. I paid three cinema tickets to see that film. It's like... And I'm going to probably pay three cinema tickets to see Prometheus three times as well. I just did, I did give a, Satan all your money. Just I hope you buy all the things I recommend, Mitch, because otherwise you are misappropriating funds, <laughs> and I will sue. <laughs> Digital Gonzo, episode 79, dated <laughs> Thursday, the 31st of May, 2012. Aliens. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. All right, people, on the ready line. Are you ready? Yeah! yeah. Are you ready? Yeah! yeah. Are you ready? Yeah. 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 Get down the die! Get on the ready line! is the second of seven reviews of the Alien movies. A few weeks ago we covered the Ridley Scott original, then my PlayStation 3 broke and I had to wait two weeks to get a new Blu-ray player, during which time we reviewed four Batman films. Now we're back for James Cameron's 1986 follow-up and I've got a new microphone. It's a blue snowball. Tell me how it sounds. Next week, due to the delay, we're covering Prometheus... And in the few weeks after that will be Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, and the two Alien vs. Predator spin-offs, and looking forward to all of them we are. I'd like to welcome back Snow White, a.k.a. Leah Haydu of Game Adult version 4.0. Hello. Joshua Gowarty of Kane and Wins would like to know how to get out of this chicken shit outfit. Hello there. Somebody wake up Matt Ramsey of Dork Tunes. Good evening. 
Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet, not bad for a human. Hello. And James Perkins of Geekwad, never been mistaken for a man. Hello. <laughs> Before we start, a brief bit of housekeeping. The first Gonzo Planet Expo, Gplex 2012, featuring, among other things, gaming sessions, a charity shelf candy auction, and a live recorded Nevermind the Buzz Geeks pub quiz, is taking place on July 28th at midday at the Holiday Inn Birmingham City Centre. Currently, the number of people who can make it number at 27, which puts the ticket prices at £20.37p each. When we open the pot up, the accumulated funds will pay off the £550 room hire. Remember, the room can hold 50 people, so anyone else who wants to jump in, come on over to the forums and put your name on the list within the next week. After that, I'm opening up the pot and fixing the price, and we can deal with latecomers on a case-by-case basis. It means you can still come, but they'll have, we'll have to basically redistribute your ticket price to everyone else. It'll be complicated, so that's kind of why I kind of want to get it done in the next few weeks. Everyone who knows they're going on the forums already, keep an eye out for both the final price, a link to the pot, and requests from myself and the backstage team for equipment we'll need bringing along on the day. Once again, we have a fantastically rich and dense film to discuss, six people to discuss it, and the possibility of running long. So help me God, I am going to keep this conversation focused. First little gonzo history. Aliens cost... Anyone? Money. Money. No one knows the budget for aliens. Well, we wouldn't need you if we had all this information. That is true. (laughs) As I've said before about Gonzo Planet, it's like Wikipedia with a voice program attached. Aliens cost $18 million in 1986, which is roughly $35 million today. You could make it seven times for the price of one avatar. That's James Cameron's avatar. It made $131 million, which is $252 million by today's standards, less than a tenth of the amount that Avatar made. Cameron's 3D benchmark is sitting pretty at $2.7 billion, more than twice that of the Avengers. That's not going to be beaten in a long time, not until they have smell-o-vision. And I bet Hollywood are trying to convince you that all films must have smell from now on. And that's why they don't make R-rated blockbusters anymore, if they ever did, and why Hollywood won't give up on 3D. Following the success of The Terminator, Cameron and his partner Gail Ann Hurd were given approval to direct and produce a sequel to Alien, scheduled for a 1986 release. Cameron was enticed by the opportunity to create a new world and opted not to follow the same formula as Alien, but to create a worthy combat sequel, focusing more on terror and less on horror. Sigourney Weaver, who played Ellen Ripley in Alien, had doubts about the project, but after meeting Cameron, she expressed interest in revisiting her character. 20th Century Fox, however, refused to sign a contract with Weaver over a payment dispute, and asked Cameron to write a story excluding Ellen Ripley. He refused, on the grounds that Fox had indicated that Weaver had signed on when he began to write the script. With Cameron's persistence, Fox signed the contract and Weaver obtained a salary of one million dollars. A sum equal to 30 times what she was paid for the first film. I think we can work out where this pay dispute came from. Weaver nicknamed her role in the Alien sequel Rambolina, referring to John Rambo of the Rambo series, and stated that she approached the role as akin to the titular role in Henry V or Women Warriors in Chinese classical literature. Aliens was filmed on a budget of $18 million at Pinewood Studios, which is in Britain for you Americans, with productions lasting 10 months. 
Production was affected by a number of personnel and cast disruptions. Shooting was said to be problematic due to cultural clashes between Cameron and the British crew, with the crew having what actor Bill Paxton called a really indentured way of working. Cameron, who is known to be a hard-driving director, and also something of a cock, and at the time was bound to a low budget with a release date set that he could not delay, found it difficult to adjust to working practices such as the regular tea breaks that brought production to a temporary halt. So you're in England, James. You've got to work with the tea breaks. The crew were admirers of Ridley Scott, and many believe Cameron to be too young and inexperienced to be directing a film such as Aliens, despite Cameron's attempts to show them his previous film, The Terminator, which had not yet been released in the UK. Imagine how frustrating that must have been. Come on, guys, I really can direct. What's this? It's got robots. At one point, the crew members mocked Cameron's wife, producer Gail Ann Hurd, by asking her who the producer was, and insisted that she was only getting a producer credit because she was married to the director. A walkout occurred when Cameron clashed with an uncooperative cameraman who refused to light a scene the way Cameron wanted. This was on the extras. Does anyone know this story? I've heard a lot about it, but I've never delved into it. Well, it's... It's on one of the documentaries. Basically, this guy was like a classically trained lighting engineer, and he lit the uh, queen's nest perfectly. You could see absolutely everything. Thus, it completely fucked the scene. Because if you can see absolutely everything, it's a puppet. After the cameraman was fired, Heard managed to coax the crew members into coming back to work. Philosopher Stephen Mulhall has remarked that the four alien films represent an artistic rendering of the difficulties faced by a woman's voice to have itself heard in a masculinist society, as Ripley continually encounters males who try to silence her and force her to submit to their desires. Mulhall sees this as depicted in several events in Aliens, particularly the inquest scene in which Ripley's explanation for the deaths and destructions of the Nostromo as well as her attempts to warn the board members of the alien danger, are met with officious disdain. However, Mulhall believes that Ripley's relationship with Hicks illustrates that Aliens is devoted to the possibility of modes of masculinity that seek not to stifle, but rather to accommodate the female voice, and modes of femininity that can acknowledge and incorporate something more or other of masculinity than our worst nightmare of it. So basically that bit where Hicks agrees with her and says that they go and nuke the site from orbit, only way to be sure, is the first time that someone listens to Ripley in this film. Several movie academics, including Barbara Creed, have remarked on the colour and lighting symbolism in the Alien franchise, which offset white, strongly lit environments, spaceships and corporate offices, against darker, dirtier, corrupted settings, derelict alien ship, abandoned industrial facilities. These black touches contrast or even attempt to take over the purity of the white elements. Others, such as Kyle M. Ortega of Emory University, agree with this interpretation and point to the Sulaco with its sterilised white interior as representing this element of the second film of the franchise. While some claim that the shape of the Sulaco is based on a submarine, the design has more often been described to as a gun in space, resembling the rifles used in the movie. Author Rod Cavani called the opening shot of the ship travelling through space fetishistic and shark-like, an image of brutal strength and ingenious efficiency, while the materialised interior of the Sulaco, designed by Ron Cobb, is contrasted to the organic nature of the Nostromo in the first movie. So specifically, like, the uh, hypersleep pods were very sort of insect-like, and when it sort of popped open, it was like insect wings, whereas these are much more like refrigerators. The android character of Bishop has been the subject of literary and philosophical analysis as the high-profile fictional android, conforming to science fiction author Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, 
and as a model of a compliant, potentially self-aware machine. His portrayal has been studied by writers for the University of Texas Press for its implications relating to how humans deal with the presence of an other, as Ripley treats them with fear and suspicion, and a form of high-tech racism and an android apartheid is present throughout the series. That is true, actually. This is seen as a part of a larger trend of technophobia in films prior to the 1990s, with Bishop's role being particularly significant as he proves his worth at the end of the film, thus confounding Ripley's expectations. Now, does anyone know how these fared at the box office in terms of aggregate score? Anyone checked out Rotten Tomatoes' freshness? No, I haven't. Um, because these films have become like classics, you kind of just assume that the uh, review scores are very positive, but mm. I'm not sure. I'm assuming when you say these films, you're referring to the first two, right? Oh, yeah, sorry. Alien 1 and 2. Yeah, it's pretty much everyone's, it's a given that everyone goes, yeah, Alien 1 and 2, great. And you can pretty much take or leave or hate the, uh, the the next four, but if you actually profess to really enjoying any of them, you kind of have to back yourself up, it seems. Yeah, Alien got 96% uh, freshness rating. It's uh, It's got three poor reviews, which I'm going to read you now. Uh, just a brief snippet. These things no longer surprise or tantalise us as they once did. In a very short time, science fiction films have developed their own jargon that's now become a part of the grammar. That's Vincent Canby of the New York Times. It is depressing to watch an expensive, crafty movie that never soars beyond its cold desire to score the big bucks. That's Frank Rich of Time magazine. And an empty-headed horror movie with nothing to recommend it beyond the disco-inspired art direction and some handsome, if gimmicky, cinematography. That's Dave Kerr, the Chicago Reader. Now, these are not just hack journalists. These are actually writing for established newspapers. And interestingly enough, all three of those came after 2005 as reviews. So up to that point it was 100% across the board. So it just took these three people standing out and saying, actually, despite popular opinion, Alien is in fact kind of rubbish. So yeah, thank, thank you for your input, guys. Um, you're talking bollocks, but okay. <laughs> Aliens, <laughs> interestingly enough, anyone want to guess the percentage of freshness rating on the sequel? I reckon it's lower, um, <laughs> around like the 80 mark, I'm going to say. Anyone want to go higher or lower than 80? I'd say probably 80, 85, purely because more people probably saw it and reviewed it, and that always tends to bring the score down a bit. Ah. Um, anyone else? 87. So who's the highest? I think that was me, 87. James, James, James yeah. is highest. Right, um, your closest. It's 100%. Whoa! Wow. Yep. Okay. Can't argue with the flawless film. <laughs> now, all that means is that 100% of the reviews said, yeah, it's good. Now, that basically means that no one said, actually, it's not all that good. Um, Alien 3. <sighs> okay, um, I don't think it's going to be... Because it's weird, because I actually kind of like that film. Um, uh, I reckon it's around the 40s, I'm yep. going to say. 40%. Really? Okay. Yep. Alien Resurrection? Oh, dear God. Um, zero. <laughs> not zero. Somebody has to have liked it. Um, this is this film you're talking about. I'm not aware of this fourth <laughs> film. Ten, <laughs> this around the tens, fifteen. Tens, fifteens. It's 55%. Really? What? Higher than what? three? Higher than Alien hell? 3. Now, bear in mind, in 1997, aggregate websites were not out there, so critics couldn't go back and just, oh, I'm just going to double check. Aliens, 199. Yes, this is a piece of shit. No, more than half the people who saw this saw, yeah, it's all right. Okay. Alien vs. Predator. Um, oh, God. 50-odd. Uh, well, 
Fifty odd, yeah. Twenty-two <laughs> percent. Oh, not. Oh, okay. I think okay, that's such. That's that is such Harsh. fucking hypocrisy. There, Alien Resurrection and Alien vs Predator are pretty much on a par for stupid action films. That's all they are. But for some reason, because Ripley Sigourney Weaver doesn't lend AVP an air of class, uh, it got relegated to a you know, shitty creature feature. This is actually James Cameron's third favorite film. Um, in the in the series now, <laughs> interestingly enough, Cameron hates Alien Three for obvious reasons. We'll go into in two weeks' time. Um, and Alien vs Predator Requiem. Well, that film is the worst one out of all of them, in my opinion. Empirically, <laughs> um, Paul is shaking his head at this point. But yeah, uh, I don't know. Tens. Twelve percent. Twelve percent. Okay, that sounds right. Justifiable. I'd imagine about 12% of the audience thought it was fucking hilarious and Paul was in that 12%. Uh, everyone else was left somewhat cold to it. I'm guessing we all watched the director's cut. Uh, yes. I, I watched the theatrical cut, but I've seen the director's cut so many times that I... I know the scenes when you're talking about them. So. Actually, you can yeah briefly talk about what the theatrical cut's like now that you've seen the director's cut so many times. The theatrical cut is a lot pacier, I feel. There are things that I do feel I miss from the director's cut. Um, I feel like um, I spend more time with the characters in the director's cut. And there are a few kind of cool scenes, like uh, the turret sequence where they set the turrets and the aliens are coming towards them mm. and they're like basically throwing themselves in front of the turrets to you know get rid of all that ammo isn't in the theatrical cut which for me was a bit weird because well, that's a really good scene why would you cut that out <laughs> to me that felt like a great scene but not in there but because the theatrical cut is kind of so pacey the film just moves along I looked at my watch and it's like wow Jesus really two hours have gone already mm. felt like an hour it's so, 17 minutes longer isn't it the, uh, the, the yeah. special edition and, and it's weird how just like little shortcuts um, here and there um, help make a film feel a lot pacier I don't know which film I prefer I think I I prefer the director's cut just because there's more of it there's more interesting stuff but I, I can see from just like a um, like from an editor's point of view why the theatrical cut is more possibly the superior version simply because it, it, it's more economical with its time it wastes less time it just goes from start to finish so yeah it was interesting seeing that after so long one key difference between the theatrical and director's cut, um, particularly with the bit with the turrets, uh, where they're mm. setting the turrets up and they're setting out the defences, it completely changes the impression you get of the Marines. In the theatrical cut, they constantly doing things in a rush. It's always half-assed and they're always kind of incompetent all the way through, uh, yeah. pretty much. But that really establishes that they are actually really kick-ass professional soldiers. They really do know what they're doing and they really can. Yeah kicks some alien butt uh, that was the, the key thing which also saw... makes the aliens more scary because ultimately if the aliens can, can dispose of a bunch of halfwits well, well done aliens but if they're actually they're professionals then that, that makes them all the more terrifying absolutely uh, I saw actually saw the theatrical 
the uh, director's cut first, I think. It was certainly the first one I remember seeing. Mm. Um, I watched the theatrical cut after that and realised what was missing. And uh, yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised at how how <laughs> stupid and, and useless the, the Marines did quite a lot of the way through the film. Because <laughs> at no point, really, each of them individually has their moment, but at no point do they really look like they know what they're doing, apart from when they go in. Just I, the Spunk Meyer doesn't get his moment. <laughs> well, he just no. finds some spunk and gets eaten. Well, this I, is true. <laughs> I would counter that by saying that I do think that some of the Marines come off as professional. It's more the people um, giving orders that come off as idiots in the theatrical cut. Mm. Um, Very specifically, I, Gorman. Yeah, who's just a complete knob. One thing I did notice was that seeing this in Blu-ray for the first time, obviously seeing it in HD for the first time how sharp and clear everything was and I, I know obviously that is going to be <laughs> a side effect of seeing things in HD um, but it did make what is a pretty old film very comparable with much more recent sci-fi fare and I, the, the two that sort of sprang to mind for me were um, the uh, new version of Battlestar Galactica it, all the, um, the spacecraft and everything very much put me in mind of that and um, also the salvage team coming on board kind of made me think of um, Serenity as well hmm. I was going to say that as well it reminded me of the first episode of Firefly yeah. where you're introduced uh, introduced to like Jane when he's they're trying to carve into a ship that's been abandoned and they're using explosive gel and stuff like that it's very reminiscent of that and if they'd found a, uh, a woman in there, that would have been... Yeah, it would have, they'd have had to get her to the nearest place where she could be deeply patronised by the company. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was really kind of impressed with, the, with how they managed to match everything up with the, uh, the Ridley Scott original. Um, and, and yet, at the same time, the, the thing that immediately struck me about this, James Cameron has a serious soft spot for uh, deep blues in his... Um, well, not just deep... A, a series of different shades of blues in his direction... Uh, specifically this, T2, The Abyss, Avatar. He's kind of similar to Michael Mann in, in how much he favours blue. Um, and it went from that sort of dirty yellow colours of uh, Ridley Scott's Alien, of deep space, to being much more sort of professional, serious... Uh, well, no, serious, it's, all, it's always serious. To being much more sort of professional, a little bit more sort of action movie-oriented, sort of blue. I don't know if, if blue represents anything specific he just uses it a lot in this I think it's just a very pleasant colour you never find blue offensive to the eyes doesn't sicken yeah whereas Alien makes you kind of feel a little bit queasy watching the whole thing especially Alien 3 that's interesting because I would say almost exactly the opposite. The way that he uses it, and particularly the shades of blue that he uses, um, and you mentioned um, the fact that it comes up in T2 a lot as well, there were so many frames and scenes in this that I was sat there going, yep, yeah, that's the same as in T2, that happens yeah. in T2, that looks the same. Even starting with just the, the, the grill effect mm. on the title screen as it, as it fades into Aliens... Um, but the that's the truck at the beginning of T2 and that's goes, right yeah. straight after the credits exactly yeah. we've um, got to do T2 for Gonzo or something. we'll do all the Terminator films for Gonzo very soon um, but the the blues that Cameron uses through this are, they're very metallic and very cold and very and there is much, a lot of steel in the movie as well there is and it's, it's sort of it's a shade that maybe it's just me but it just kind of puts my teeth on edge about things and it's um, 
the way the aliens are introduced in this and the the look of them is i think much more metallic than in the first one mm. um and i think that that combines with the color scheme and and makes everything look that bit more shiny and artificial so that's a, a continuation of what we started off talking about with the ships and how one is far more organic it that's that's a lot of things that you can say about the about alien uh, as opposed to aliens is that mm-hmm. there it's it's just more organic in general and and like you're saying Sharon the if it's if it's more of a steely type thing as opposed to a not exactly a warmer tone but uh, something that that w- didn't come out of a factory then it it does give kind of a different um, almost a more clinical uh, cast to it mm. There's that lingering shot of uh, Ripley's hand uh, resting on her chest at the beginning, which uh, is from um, the original Alien, and it kind of it's hunched over, so it looks like it is reminiscent of the face hugger, and that gets pulled in again later on when her fingers are dangling down with a cigarette just before Burke comes to see her to tell that the colony has uh, lost contact with them. Um, it's it just kind of just little visual reminder. So then it cuts to the infirmary scene, and she gets told of 57 years. And then there's the dream chest bursting. Now, this would make total narrative sense for you to dispatch Ripley and then have another team sent out. So basically, if Fox got their way and uh, Sigourney Weaver got written out of it, she could maybe turn up for a brief cameo at the beginning and get exploded. Or if, you know, they were even going to quibble over her cameo there, they'd just do an Alien 3 with her. Oh, we found a craft. It's empty, though. There's a dead woman and a cat. And then not really look at her properly. But um, at the same time, when you're actually watching it for the first time, I would imagine back in 1986, people actually totally bought that moment for a second and were absolutely filled with horror. Oh, yeah. No, because the way the scene is um, put together, I I feel like you're meant to... I don't know what the trailers were like for this film, so maybe that was revealed to be... Oh, no, no, no. She definitely featured in the trailers. All right, okay, so people knew going in that that was probably a fake-out. But the way the scene is set up, you could totally see somebody had no for, no familiarity with the film whatsoever being tricked by that Do scene. Though, there was no YouTube back in those days. People True. could just maybe go to the cinema once or twice a year and they wouldn't have a chance to see the trailers and go... Yeah. I, I'm thinking of it from my perspective now. Yeah, That's the okay. thing. It's weird, isn't it? Because we get exposed to this media every day. We forget. I forget that people didn't have access to that kind of stuff back then. Back when The Phantom Menace came out, I recorded the trailer when it was on The Big Breakfast, and I brought that into college, and we just watched it over and over again, and like, oh, this film's going to be the most awesome film ever. Uh, Turned out it wasn't. Just before the chest-bursting scene, fake out, um, there's that wonderful shot where it's on Ripley's face while she's asleep in the hypersleep chamber, and then it cuts to the earth, and it fades from her face to the earth. And it is one, the first of many, many reinforcements that Ripley is the mother. So then when she actually gets through from the dream and then goes back to reality, uh, you see what a ruin her life has become. And that's when you start to really wonder what... I mean, once you, when you see the films repeatedly, you wonder what she could possibly have come back to. I mean, without Newt, she's got... You know, she, she loses her, her, her daughter, retrospectively, and... Um, uh, the, the notion that specifically that her daughter died of old age, even though 66 doesn't seem to be that old, seems actually quite young by today's standards, and she actually looks like, well, a lot older than the average 66-year-old these days. But it's very significant that uh, Ripley has that kind of 
Ripley Van Winkle thing where she's been asleep for that long and, and now nothing she knows is still around anymore. She's like Captain America. Hence that 57 years reference in The Ultimates. She has that uh, conversation with the corporate people at uh, that meeting and um, they're basically talking to her about her decision to destroy the Nostromo and how they're all concerned about the percentages, the price, how much it costs them to um, uh, make that uh, machine, uh, the spaceship, how much the cargo cost. And mm. they're, all they're concerned about is the amount of money that she wasted because she saw a ghost. In their eyes, I think that's how they saw it. So, like, oh, she was a bit paranoid, so she decided to destroy hundreds of millions of you know dollars worth of equipment and um, resources. And so she's in this position now where she can only get, like, the lowliest of work. Mm. Um, Effectively a forklift driver. Yeah. And, and you know No offence to forklift drivers out there. I don't even... No, it, it's not. It's not so much like forklift driving is a horrible job. It's more that it's wasted potential because you've seen what she's capable of in the um, first Alien film. Like she is a survivor. She's intelligent. She's very capable woman. And how is she repaid for you know her troubles? Oh, you can do that for a living. You can do the lowliest job that nobody wants. Thanks for uh, thanks for all your hard work, Ripley. Pat on the head. Bye bye. Mm. Out the door. And her apartment is decorated with bits from uh, inside of an aircraft. They wanted it to feel very very temporary. So like, her her toilet is an airplane toilet. It is it, everything about it is like a cubicle. She's been shunted away into. It's like Corbin Dallas's apartment in um, Fifth Element, only less fun. And she comes back at this point, and she's just a she's a ghost. I, she just there's nowhere for her to fit in. There's nothing for her to go back to. There's nowhere for her to go. And nobody pays attention to her. It's really like she just doesn't quite exist there anymore until they need her. Mm. Yeah, the second they need her and need her advice, they're, they're begging her. There is a lot in this um, beginning part of the film, actually, and I mentioned it um, before, that led me to sort of see the comparisons between this and um, Terminator 2, and very specifically the comparisons between Ripley and Sarah Connor. Um, and they really do build up the um, when she's at the the inquest or the hearing or, or whatever it is, and she's being asked to go over and over the same information again. And she she says to them, "I've been through this already." It parallels very neatly with um, Sarah's interview with uh, Dr. Silverman at the beginning mm. of um, T2, where she says, you've, you've heard this so many times, you know I'm only going to say the same stuff, why are you making me say it all again? The dreams that Ripley has as well, this recurring nightmare that she keeps waking up from is... Um, which no one else can share. Exactly, which, um, which is... Uh, similar to the, the dream that Sarah has with the, uh, the nuclear explosion. The fact that both of them are... The, the thing you mentioned about the idea of, of this woman's voice being silenced, they are trying to bring information to people about something that they just don't want to hear about and they just keep getting you know, shoved in a cell, shoved in a little apartment. Nobody will, will listen to what it is that they're trying to say. And they both have this overwhelming survivor's guilt, albeit that Sarah's survivor's guilt hasn't actually happened yet. She hasn't survived the apocalypse yet, mm. but she knows She's she will. She's a pre-survivor. Exactly. Um, and it's just, I found it so intriguing to see how the characters, the, I mean, they're, they're 
very different actresses, but the, the characters that they play were so very similar. And I could see if Sigourney Weaver had played Sarah Connor, she would probably have played it quite similarly. And if Linda Hamilton had played Ripley, she probably would have as well. It was mm. quite interesting to, to sort of compare the two. It is important to say that uh, Cameron's viewpoints on uh, militaria and uh, corporate greed uh, are presented in extremely black and white broad brush strokes in both this and T2 and Avatar. Uh, it, uh, the, you know, the, the corporations are all corporation-y. Uh, the, the, the colonel, or was it, what's the name of the uh, guy played by um, Stephen Lang in Avatar? What's his rank? Colonel McScarface. Colonel Mc, <laughs> Colonel McEvil bastard. He he is only he's like you know I, I I'm here to shoot natives and get the job done and fuck anyone who gets in my way. It's he, he's not even really a character and uh, all of that basically kind of started here. T uh, two actually has a bit more in in the way of um like for example it makes Miles Dyson someone who actually regrets what he's a you know he's he's been uh, leading up to. But, I mean, the, the notion of unobtainium is like James Cameron's like, you people, you're always after something. Well, here's the something you're after. We'll call it unobtainium. And unfortunately, everyone sort of just sort of jumped on that and said, that's stupid. Your film's stupid. Which, of course, it, it's just a metaphor, but unfortunately, everyone took it way too literally. But, um, but they, they all have their roots here. And so when she's at a board meeting, in fact, so many of the bits at the beginning of this film remind me of the, uh, you know, the scientific and military side of Avatar, where the, the humans are going around. Um, in, in a good way, because I like that Avatar reminds me of aliens a little bit. Going back to the scene where uh, Ripley finds out about her daughter dying, yeah. um, I watched the director's cut earlier today and I turned on the deleted scene marker and that is actually a deleted scene that whole scene where she finds out about her daughter yeah, yeah it wasn't in the theatrical release it wasn't release. in the theatrical release um, with, uh, with Combine saying how, um, how pacey the theatrical release uh, feels that's obviously well that, with that scene not being there that yeah. keeps up the pace and doesn't slow it down whereas the director's cut really sort of wants to focus on that emotional moment when she finds out. Yeah. That's really crucial, though, because that's key yeah. to her relationship with Newt. Yeah. yeah, there is actually a little bit um, when she's speaking with Newt later on, um, just literally a second or two, where she mentions her daughter and the little deleted scene marker comes up. And that's cut out, obviously, in the theatrical release as well, with, with the uh, main scene not being in there. Right. That's what I was talking about when I was speaking about uh, characterization, the lack of it in the theatrical one. Mm. It, yeah. it, it it moves along at a much you know better pace, it and it feels like a faster movie, but you miss out on some of those crucial character details that the that crucial seventeen minutes gives you. Yeah. It's so funny that seventeen minutes adds so much to a movie. I find that fascinating. It, it is a significantly better and deeper and more interesting cut. Yeah. Almost nothing that's added to it is completely fatuous, including, of course, everything that happens on LV-421. You don't get any of that in the uh, theatrical version, and, um, but to actually see Newt clean and relatively content with her family and just to yeah. sort of see what that is before it gets shattered 
Um, anyone else think that that kid on the big wheel tricycle is referencing The Shining? I made that exact comment yesterday. Yeah. Thank you, Leah. <laughs> Sharon said, why would he reference The Shining? No, why wouldn't he reference The Shining? I didn't mean why would he in the sense of, of course he's not. I was just, just asking the if there was a specific reason. There doesn't have to be a reason. It's the goddamn Shining. Sorry. <laughs> I swear to God, that, that Matt can back me up here. This is exactly what I said. I said, he's going to drive down the hallway and there's going to be two little blonde girls standing at the end and they're going to look at each other and then blood. We want to play with this Exactly. <laughs> two, two, two little chest bursters. Okay, we're getting into a weird area here. Oh, and Leah, this will be completely lost on you. Okay. Anyone else recognise Captain Hollister? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the captain of Red Dwarf. If you've ever seen series one of Red Dwarf, it's the slightly slimmer. And this was only like a year before Red Dwarf started, Captain Hollister. Um, who actually, I believe, was in The Fifth Element as well. He was the cop who ended up spilling soda all over himself when Corbin flew straight past him. Yep. Uh, but yeah, then there's LV-421 with Hard Living. Now, here's an interesting thing. Theatrical version, no implication that Newt's father was the first one to be contaminated. Director's cut, that means... The one that burst out of him was the queen, or became the queen later on, depending on the alien life cycle. Yeah. Yeah, which makes the queen, in a weird way, Newt's sister. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, dear God. (laughs) Well, Sharon said, I dispute that on a fundamental biological level. (laughs) Uh, And you're completely right to, but Ash did say, in a blackly humorous kind of way, in the original alien, Kane's son. Ash was mental! He was. <laughs> but, <laughs> symbolic, yeah, but symbolically speaking, you can mm. make that connection that, you know, her sister killed her father. Yeah. And, and everyone else. The chain of events w- uh, would have been that um, the chest person that came out of him would have gone and hidden somewhere in the colony, most likely would have transformed into a queen, maybe ha- killing a few people as well along the way, started laying eggs, loads of facehuggers got out, got onto colonists, they tried to get them off, a lot of chest bursters started coming out, which means there were 157 aliens max. Uh, are suddenly all over the colony. Uh, maybe ever so slightly less, because some of them may not quite have burst yet, because that one that they meet is one of the last, it would appear. Get well, it's a refinement of the alien life cycle, because yeah. this film actually laid down what the aliens did and, and where they came from with the Queen, because the Queen was a creation of James Cameron, who yep. came up with it himself. And it makes sense if you understand how insects work. And it also makes sense that a drone could become a Queen in an environment where there is no other Queen. Um, and But here's the interesting thing. I did some reading up on, on that deleted scene with uh, Dallas and Brett in uh, Alien, and the way they actually designed them when they're sort of moulded into the wall, they've actually got egg pods, the facehugger pods, sort of scaling up around them. The implication there is that basically they are becoming those pods. Now that is totally fucking mental and nothing to do with the alien life cycle that we know of. That doesn't mean that it's not actually canon, which is interesting. Um, but if you actually look at the, the, um, the Brett one in the wall, you have to freeze frame it. He's almost totally been absorbed into a pod and the poor guy's eye has been pulled out of his head by a curious alien. It's, it's pretty horrible. So yeah, that was the life cycle before Cameron got his hands on it.
So the hypersleep sequence, uh, purposefully deliberately reminiscent of the one at the beginning of Alien, uh, although it would appear that the Marines keep their pulse rifles in pret-a-manger fridges. Uh, Anyone else notice the hanging chains? Yeah, very reminiscent of the first film. In fact, a lot of the um, choices that Cameron makes are quite reminiscent of the first film. The beginning of the film, in fact, feels very similar to the beginning of the first Alien Mm. and stuff like that. It's weird because later on I feel like he establishes his own identity uh, with this film. It Mm. almost feels like he's easing people in. Yeah. Okay, it's like, okay, you remember the old Alien and I'm going to be loyal to it. Don't worry, guys. But as the movie changes, like, okay, this is its own thing. It has its own style and its own personality. And I, and I like that he's easing people into that. It, it shows that he's respecting the source material, but also I, I want to put my own stamp on this film. Mm. But yeah, yeah. anyone notice the, the little um, 80s executive toys, the sort of spinning uh, steel ball thingies, uh, reminiscent of the drinking bird that uh, turned up in the beginning of Alien? They're like little things and set designs and dressings and things just put around there to make you just somewhere in the back of your mind tie it up with Alien. Um, and interestingly enough, you know that the pods that they've got there, the, the hypersleep pods, mm-hmm. there's actually only four of them because of the budgetary restrictions, they positioned a mirror to make it appear that there were 12. Clever. That is clever. That is very clever. And they all opened at exactly the same time, because if they opened at different times, you'd, you'd see that there was an obviously different um, sequence to it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way of uh, establishing space with like an old like magician's trick. I love it when they do stuff like that. They are the most impractical uh, stasis pods in the world, though. Because they open up and basically form an archway, which I would inevitably bang my head on every time I got up. Yep. It's ridiculous. However, the moment they get up, suddenly Alien starts becoming immensely quotable. Now, I don't know if you guys remember the Predator podcast, where me and Matt and uh, I think Neil was on that one, wasn't it? Um, The amount of quoting that went on there. (laughs) So, similarly, any time we uh, quote Aliens... Take a drink, guys. <laughs> awesome. Everyone's going to die drinking. Not you guys. Oh. <laughs> oh. Misunderstood. No, no, listeners. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it immediately starts. And it, it's funny. It's, it's well-written. It's well-delivered. It's tight. And you start to immediately like these guys, even though you start to label, like, this guy's a bozo, this guy's cool, this girl's tough. And the guy from Halo. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, seriously, he is just Johnson. Or Johnson is just him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a poem you're talking about. Now, that guy actually was uh, in the military, and it really shows him that the, the, his, he is an inspiring presence for, the, for these guys. But basically, their the unit is only as strong as their commanding officer. And unfortunately, he dies pretty early. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, technically, no. Hang on. The certain teacher go dead, man. Her lifestyle's real low, but they ain't dead. Take a shot. So yeah, that he gets grabbed and probably chest bursted. Again, it it kind of compounds my no, idea that they maybe get lobotomized when they get put in the thing because basically everyone who, who's tied to the wall just goes, oh, "It killed me." I just I'm kind of amazed that Nuke got away with it. Maybe the alien forgot. Maybe it thought she was so small that like, she couldn't get out. Maybe it just is a narrative contrivance that she didn't get head bursted. Wing man, I mean, you, you, it's a lot of work to get not a whole lot of meat off of it. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I can't be bothered with this one. <laughs> so it goes straight back to the military agenda, and the notion that Cameron is making this Vietnam in space is hammered home repeatedly. These guys are super brash, very arrogant. They don't even listen to Ripley when she's giving her debriefing. Like That could have saved lives. Not all of them, clearly, because they were totally outmatched. But no one gave her the time of day. No one listened to her. And they just sort of went in. They got this military superiority. And when Hudson's reeling off the list of various weapons they've got, it's it's like the, the GIs getting thrown into Vietnam. They had, they had military superiority. And they were up against people who really knew the terrain and were connected locally. And they got completely torn to pieces. That's what I'm saying. Nobody listens to Ripley. It's a big problem. Yeah. They don't even listen to Ripley in Alien 3, they don't listen to Ripley in Alien 4. You'd think somebody eventually would figure out that you need to listen to her at least a little bit. <laughs> and they didn't listen to Sigourney Weaver say that the Alien vs. Predator movies would be stupid, and they turned out to be stupid. All the way through the film, she's trying to tell uh, the authorities the danger, inherent danger of the aliens and about the aliens. Nobody believes her at every point. She's completely ignored, and it's a uh, kind of uh, similar idea to Cassandra from Greek mythology, who's mm. cursed to to tell the truth always and to never be believed. It's supposed to be a very frustrating um, existence. Also, like Sarah Connor as well, then. Very much so. Alien. She thought they said illegal alien signed up. Fuck you, man. Anytime, anywhere. All right, sweethearts, you heard the man, and you know the drill. Assholes and elbows. Come here. Come here. Okay, right. I did fall in love with the dropship when I was a kid because I saw this when I was about 12 and I still had a big old box of Lego at the time and I think I made like eight different iterations on the dropship just trying to perfect uh, what I could do. I just like, it, It's just such an awesome little... It's kind of like the best um, aspects of an Apache helicopter and Thunderbird 2. It looks like it's got a lot of firepower as well. And it's weird that you never get to see it. You get uh, get to see it in action because it's got those um, things that fold out on the on the side of the ship, and it's got loads of missiles on it. And I, it's weird that they um, they went to the effort of designing this thing, and never really you never really get to see it in action, as it no. were. Well, that's it's perfectly it, it's a perfect example that they are over equipped to deal with a completely different kind of enemy. This is kind of, this kind of reminds me of World War Z, mm, um, yes. the battle they have in World War Z, where they got all this technology and all this state-of-the-art stuff, which is completely useless against the enemy they're about to face. That is, they've got to be they, related. Land Warrior is like those cameras they've got in their helmets. Yeah, and and like Land Warrior, it, it just serves to make everyone panic and, and mm. even. Where's the pawn? Where's the pawn? Yeah. And, I mean, if you were facing the aliens, for example, and you knew more about the aliens, you wouldn't have explosive rounds in your guns like the pulse mm. rifles have. You'd have bullets that simply just penetrate and do damage, but don't spray acid blood in your face like <laughs> explosive rounds do. Mm. Um, 
Or they didn't get uh, they didn't get briefed on um, the the aliens themselves. No one ever told them they got acid for blood. Now technically. They didn't know for sure, because Ripley never actually encountered that, uh, literally, in the original Aliens. It was, the first person to find out was, um, was Drake. They knew that the um, facehuggers had acid for blood, but there was no specific reason uh, to, to know for certain that the xenomorphs uh, had acid for blood. Or, or you know, other things like it hangs around on the ceiling. It can blend in with its environment. To be fair, there was no way they could have known that. Um, yeah. That's completely new. Yeah. But still... Oh. Another bit of kit that's worth mentioning, the motion tracker. That is just such a brilliant piece of kit for building up tension. I can, I'm going to see if I can get the uh, sound effects on here now, but there's just this uh, sense of... Mini, mini. So there is an app available down. on the Android Marketplace that uh, will make your phone into a motion tracker. Awesome. awesome. Down- downloading now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, does it actually track motion? No, sadly not. <laughs> it's not quite that, that not, good. For 69p, uh, I wanted to track motion. No, it's free, so I didn't complain too much. It's inside the complex. No, no, it ain't you. They're inside, inside the perimeter. They're in here. This signal's weird. Must be some interference or something. There's movement all over the place. Movement. Signal's clean. Range 20 meters. 18. 17 meters. 15 meters. 13 meters. That's right outside the door. Yeah, this is a big fucking signal. 12 meters. 11. 10. 9 meters. 8 meters. 7. 6. It's reading right, man. Look. Five meters, man. Four. What the hell? Oh, my God. Oh, there they go over there. Get it. There's a sort of a sensory memory thing, so if you actually hear that, you start immediately flashing back to aliens now. So that's, that's no wonder they use it in all of the uh, alien-related games. It's kind of a crappy motion tracker, though. Yeah. I mean... We've, we've got better motion trackers now. Just, just, to, <laughs> like li- just to link it to... Uh, Colonial Marines which uh, should eventually come out next year uh, especially when it comes out on the Wii U or whatever they're going to call it um, having the tablet as the motion tracker that's what mm. they said that they're probably going to do which is quite a cool idea Okay, Newt is a, a, a step up for the uh, series actually it introduces the key elements of the, the fact that the Marines seem to know what they're doing to begin with and you think to yourself actually they, they've got the firepower Whatever's in there, they can probably deal with it. Um, at least they'll, you know, they'll they'll bust some heads before they get overwhelmed. So you've got that aspect of it, and then suddenly they introduce Newt, and you put a child in the middle of this situation, which was a very brave thing to do because the propensity for possibility of be- having a really irritating kid was w- exceptionally high, and it very rarely works. But Newt, as a child of war, sells that so very well. Carrie Hen. Um, I don't think she did any acting after this significantly. According to Internet Movie Database, no, she did not. Yeah, I've seen her in, in interviews later. So unlike Carol Ann uh, from uh, Poltergeist, she lived, thankfully. It's that kind of completely blasted look about her. And um, from the sounds of it, James Cameron wasn't overly mean to her like he was with everybody else. So uh, she kind of got off lightly. But, uh, I probably I, would have hit him if he'd started being mean to the kid. Yeah. It seems like uh, a lot of direct because Stanley Kubrick was the same way, wasn't he? He just hmm. he was okay with kids, but everybody else got fucked. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Stanley Kubrick and James Cameron. Actually, I mentioned Kubrick when I in the same breath when I said you know, Cameron is something of a cock when it comes to directing. Like, uh, there were reports when people weren't drowning in the right way in Titanic. He was just standing up on top of the, the deck shouting, Someone get me a fucking rifle! And he was being really unpleasant with uh, people. You know, extras. He specifically hates extras. 
but he can do a really good film. And like uh, Kubrick, you know, 85 take Kubrick can do something quite extraordinary with films sometimes, not Eyes Wide Shut, but all of his other films. I think what it comes down to is that they have, and they're not alone in this, I'm sure there are many, many other directors out there who, who operate in a similar way, or at least, you know, when they can afford to get away with it, they do. But they have a very specific vision about what they want something to, to be, and if people aren't complying with that, especially adults who in their eyes should know better and should you know should be capable of, of giving them the performances that they want, they feel justified in being you know, being gits to people. It's, it's ultimately up to the actors to decide whether that's worthwhile. Do they want to put up with being shouted at and screamed at and, you know, smacked around and be a part of something that comes out great at the other end or is that not sufficient for them to, to want to put themselves through that? I've been to know for a fact that James Cameron runs himself absolutely ragged in every film he does. Specifically in Aliens, he, he wrote the screenplay, he slaved away at it, he, he threw everything into it. So if, if um, from the sounds of it, the British crew were being particularly surly with him and probably earned his wrath at times. Although it's worth noting that Peter Jackson managed to get a sensational performance out of pretty much everybody without shouting at many people much. He has well, the gift know. of being inspiring. Uh, there are a lot of directors who manage to be very like everyone who's worked with Joss Whedon loves working with him. Mm. Like the fire, if you took uh, watch interviews with the Firefly uh, actors, they're all like, oh, I just love working with Josh. Uh, jo- jo- I'm doing what you're <laughs> doing it now. Your name is Josh. Um, yeah, but they all say they love working with Joss because he says words that actors can respond to. Like mm. I feel like um, Cameron was is possibly a more visual director so he has this vision of his in his head of exactly what he wants whereas people like Joss and Peter Jackson possibly I, I don't know enough about Peter Jackson to say for sure uh, more actors directors so they're mm. like I want you to come to me with some ideas as well I don't want to just be the visionary I want you guys to yeah. you know give me some back and forth with this film to not just be able to produce excellence but to inspire excellence in others well, I think that comes yeah. down to just a personality thing largely as well I mean you can take that with any kind of creative person you take two writers one of them can end up with an opus and end up feeling like shit about themselves and be a complete alcoholic one person can come out with the other end with something equally awesome and feel great you know it's just it's it's not always something that you can logically control yeah also Jackson's storyboards pretty much everything so it's probably a lot easier then to say to your actors this is what I want it to look like please okay so Carrie hands Newt, and automatically this starts. There's a button marked Mother for Ripley, and it just starts jabbing away at it. And every time she's in the scene with Newt, it's just like tapping, tapping, tapping until Ripley is the all commanding mother. Her delivery is actually really a little bit frightening at times. You know, she, the, the, she sort of she flits between you know being completely blasted and blown out, of, uh, and sort of you know it won't make any difference to just being a kid who's being badgered by adults. Like, they're dead, all right? Can I go now? And it's like she's sort of... uh, Her mind has been sort of broken up and and the little bits are swirling around trying to remind her how it was to be social because she's been hounded and uh, witness to the most horrific, unimaginable situation for well over two weeks now. And... um, 
has you know is malnourished and lives in this horrible squalid nest where she's just thrown everything she could gather down in one one place she's got no plan aside from just grabbing what she can um she's she is feral at this point and i i i think that's why i like the character so much because it's a child that's um believably responded to the the scenario she's in Mm. Uh, so many kids in action movies are like you know Jurassic Park 3 yeah like giving their funny little quips and being charming and being oh look oh look at the cute little dinosaurs oh la 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 um but like Newt is completely destroyed like I feel like Ripley um part of her role is kind of to repair Newt's mind almost Mm. to remind her yeah there are people here that care about you and this is this well because i know what happens in alien free i want to say everything will be all right in the end but the thing with newt is she goes to sleep and never wakes up again which is one of the things that annoys me about alien free but we'll get on to that interjection um, i am a firm believer in the multiple worlds theory and i like to think that there are many 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 parallel worlds where they just got back to earth there were various dark horse stories that carried on from aliens before alien 3 came out where newt and hicks got back to earth with ripley and it's actually kind of a happy ending insofar as Ripley not only has a new daughter, uh, Newt has a new mother, but it's like they're, they're all survivors together. And, and that notion that Ripley having these dreams no one else can share, now at least she can talk to Hicks about it and to a lesser extent she can talk to Newt about it. That's how it should have uh, ended ultimately. It, it, uh, frankly, if Aliens had just ended and there'd been no more Alien films, fine, no problem. A pair of fantastic films. Um, but obviously in the one particular reality which happens to comprise Alien 3 everyone dies yeah and it, it, it was weird watching this film again as well because the final scene with those two mm. is so happy and she's like I'm tucking my daughter to bed yeah. she'll be safe and we'll go home but it's knowing that Newt doesn't wake up again mm. it kind of it puts like a kind of dark undertone to that scene it's like you're falling asleep forever. But that's why Cameron hated Alien 3, because it fucked with his movie. It added yeah. things he didn't want to be in there. I think, I've, the thing, because I do like Alien 3, but I like it so because of the, the ideas in it. Um, but I feel like if they had removed Ripley, because that's the thing I think is the issue, is they felt the need to have Ripley be a part of that story. Whereas I don't think she... Well, no, because there's the symbolism... No, because all of the best bits yeah. of Alien 3 actually True. revolve around Ripley, and the the notion of the ruin her life has become again. It's even worse than the first time. Well, it's just... That, it, well, then it's lazy writing, uh, lazy writing towards the beginning of the film then, because there was a way they could have done that without killing Newt. Uh, well, Michael Bean and Carrie Hem would have come back for Alien 3, but that was not on the cards. So we'll talk about that next. next um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, Stan Winston's Creature Shop, the new aliens, and the environmental design. Uh, they got rid of the uh, carapace of the uh, the alien's head, that sort of that smooth dome-like thing that made it look more penisy. Uh, it, it looks a bit less... H.R. Giga designed as a result because they refined it but thus it, it looks more Cameron-ish and I, I don't know if that even makes any sense but the ridges in the head were designed so that the stuntmen would be able to move around through the environments quicker without accidentally cracking a, uh, a perfectly domed head 
it would allow for more more damage to be sustained without it showing up on camera. And it also shows in the movie because they are a lot more mobile. These aliens mm. Mm. Um, in the first Alien, they didn't actually show the alien that much, and whenever they did show it, it was just like a quick flash. So I I, I bet that's probably one of the reasons why it's filmed that way because. If that uh, thing moves the wrong way, suddenly the costume's broken, and they have yeah. to spend loads of money, you know, fixing it or making a new one. Mm. So it was. A, I I kind of prefer the dome head, um, the the smooth head, uh, because I just think it's more aesthetically interesting. But the, I understand that makes sense having the ridge heads. There. They only appeared again with the ridge heads in one film. The worst one. Yep, AVPR. Uh, I actually prefer, in some ways, the the more organic look to the the alien, the creature mm. from Aliens, um, the the smooth carapace. I don't know. It, it looked a bit plastic uh, in some ways, and the the creature from Aliens looks like an animal. It completely looks like an animal, mm. uh, which I, I don't know. It's, it's a personal aesthetic choice, maybe, but. I mean, maybe if you counted up the screen time between Alien, it, it must amount to less than a minute. And in this, there's several minutes worth of Aliens on screen. Yeah. So a more percentage of likelihood of it looking a bit rubbery. That's actually an interesting point because it's... Um, we, we talked before about how the first movie in general is more organic looking and the second movie in general is more processed. So if you take the reverse of that as the... as the aliens, I mean, if they're more processed looking the first one and more organic looking the second one, it just makes them more out of place and kind of scarier for that. I, I think for me, just to say why I prefer the the carapace in the uh, first one is because just it looks more like an insect to me, yeah. whereas the ridges and the quite weird design of the ones in Aliens feels more reptilian. Um, hmm. And I, because they were, they have that kind of insectoid um, life cycle, it felt it felt more um, it felt more. Oh, despite the fact it's completely fantastical, it felt more real to me that it would be have more insectoid characteristics than reptilian. But that's just me. Oh, no, I know. I, I completely agree with that. Um, I, I did a personal you know, a personal tasting for me. The, yeah. the aliens in in the second film aren't particularly insectoid the way they move they're much more like a, a, a lizard of some kind they're, they're crawling around on all fours they don't look anything like insects in that film and I think that the it's just a personal choice on my part I, I prefer the look of them from, from the second film but th- there's not a lot of differences just mainly that carapace really yes. um, but I, that's just a personal choice on my part Is there any reason why that I mean, I know you're kind of retrofitting explanations here, but is there any particular reason why it would have had the carapace in the first one, but then through environmental reasons, or it, what could have had an impact on them in the second one that would have meant that it didn't have that? You mean, what's a flimsy uh, excuse that we can make for it? Uh, <laughs> it could simply be they're more mature. <laughs> they're just more mature. It might be a smooth carapace when it's they very, shed very it, young. Shed it Bear in mind, it's what, two, they're, they're potentially two weeks old. And that would match Several up with the, the creature in Alien 3 is very young as well, hence That's its a good smooth point, head. Actually, yeah. Whereas and in the first the film, it's what? It's you know, a, a couple of days old when it gets blown out of an airlock. So, yeah. mm. um, do okay. change completely f- as they grow older. So mm. The little chest burster that comes out that um, Pone um, torches has a smooth head. Dietrich. 
Dietrich, sorry, Dietrich torches. Also, there have been, you know, 57 years in between one and the other. It could just be that they've changed. Evolution. That's, that's, a, that's an awfully quick timetable for evolution, but you don't know how these things work, so I mean... And then they unchange again for Alien 3. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then again, I mean, having said that, it comes out of a dog in Alien 3, or an ox, depending on which version you watch. So, again, that could have had a different effect on its biology. Ooh, okay. Um, the environmental design. Now, we never got to see the alien effectively terraforming its environment in the original cut of Alien. We do in the 2003 version, but no one would have got to see that apart from James Cameron, who would have been able to look at the raw footage and read the book on it. Um, the decision to thus have the aliens shape their environment to look very reminiscent of the ship, Space Jockey Ship, was an interesting one. It calls into question the alien life cycle in a way that is going to either be answered or completely contradicted in Prometheus in less than a week's time. And I'm kind of fascinated to find out because that they're either imitating part of their own forefather's life cycle, if there's something from the space jockey's gene pool, or there's something to do with the reason the space jockey ship looks like that. The more and more I think about it, I, I really think the idea of them being biological weapons constructed mm. by the space jockeys actually has quite a lot of merit, just mm. from the way, I mean, first of all, you know, the ship's design, the way it looks in the first mm. film, but also just the way the eggs are in the um, the uh, ship, just like they're like a, an experiment. Um, and maybe there wasn't even a queen at that point. We were talking about maybe the queen's off in the corner laying the eggs. Maybe the queen was just a concept, and the eggs were the first things because they constructed these things from scratch, and then the queen mm. is just like something that will uh, evolve later as these things... Like I assume they'd like send some eggs to a planet they don't like, and then mm. like the, eventually the aliens would just wipe out all life on the planet or something like that. But they then have to work out how to get rid of the, the aliens themselves, because the aliens not only would kill everyone, but they'd, they'd, they'd turdscape the entire place, so yeah. that it's all covered in this disgusting resin. And I'd imagine that that comes from... They must absorb matter in some way and then shit it back out again, possibly yeah. through those pipes at the back of them, and smear it all over the walls. Well, they have acid blood so it's perfectly capable of them being able to like digest metal and stuff oh, like that but if the space jockeys live on a planet that's like that anyway that's exactly what they want oh yeah. shit dude you just blew my mind <laughs> <laughs> or I did. so they're terrible uh, well that's an interesting uh, idea maybe the aliens are a form of terraforming I was just going to say they're kind of paralleled with the uh, emphasis colonists. on the terror yeah. Um, yeah. Burke says They're about colonists. the colonists go in with the, the um, uh, oxygen machine. No, actually, it's so that guy who sounds like he's dubbed in a porn film. It's what we call a shake and bake colony. Oh, that's it, yeah. But yeah, yeah so the aliens are effectively a shake and bake colony. Well, that, that would give aliens so much more of an interesting slant. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could just basically go, right, new trilogy, alien, Prometheus, alien, aliens, end. <laughs> Everything after that is just a bunch of shit. Next week we and can. <laughs> and they all lived happily ever after. It's not out of the question to actually completely cancel out canon. Superman Returns cancels out 3 and 4. Yeah. Which you'll see for people who hate Alien 3, you may just have an excuse to just completely fucking ignore it from now on. James Horner's Brass. 
Anybody count how many times James Horner goes... <coughs> you know, the sting. Where anything jumps out and it goes... <laughs> it's approximately... Please include that somewhere in the podcast. I will not. It's approximately 722 times per minute. That, that's just a guess. I was keeping count. I, lo- I lost count when I hit 10,000. Uh, no, uh, it, it's, it's overused a little bit, but to, it's overused to great effect if that makes any goddamn sense. You're, you're totally on edge. And there was actually a, a, a point I had to jostle Sharon to stop her talking but during the bit where um, Hicks and uh, Ripley were just trying to get into the lift and the lift doors won't close. And then the alien comes jumping through and he goes... <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kind of riffing on Jerry Goldsmith's soundscape from the original, James Horner kind of punctuates and gives sound effects to what's actually going on. Horner apparently did not have a fantastic time of making this. It was very down to the wire and he had very little time to actually put it together. He requested several more weeks uh, when they were close to the end. And uh, Cameron and Heard said, you can't have several more weeks, you can do it now. To which point, I think he almost walked off completely. Basically, Cameron uh, weighed it up and it was like, right, we can either get someone on to start from scratch and still have to keep to this ridiculous deadline, or I can be really, really grovelly to James Horner and try and get him back. And he got him back, but they didn't work with each other again until Titanic, when um, James Horner's score for Braveheart caught Cameron's attention. And they both made a large amount of money from the soundtrack, which was Oscar nominated. Oh, I think it won, didn't it? Um... But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's got this real kind of bombast to it, which is, is it, it, and the, the constant military drums and things and the military trumpets, it, it, it perfectly sets the tone for a completely different kind of film to the original. Well, it, that's the thing. The, the, the tone of the film is much more, um, I, I describe it, I, I'm tempted to describe it as an action movie, but I think it's more accurate to describe it as a, a thriller. So it's not so much concentrating on action, but more tension. Uh, not action, um, uh, horror. It, the first film is about dread and building horror and stuff like that, whereas this one is much more about tension and, mm. like, building up moments and then exploding, um, you know, you know, slow moments, quiet moments, and then explosions, loads of fast-paced like action happening everywhere yeah. um, and, and the, the score reflects the fact there are moments where it's like just building tension and then squee I think you mean you sound like Tim Minchin when you do that and there's um, the, the I remember actually again from the James Horner situation uh, for the very end sequence he was given one day to uh, do the Ripley versus the Queen music and uh, he, he got it done and he gave it to Cameron and Cameron then said right I've completely edit- re-edited the scene again change it make it match again so basically the way a, f- uh, a score is done the artist watches what's going on on the screen listens to how it's going gets the tempo exactly right and then he has beats depending on what is going on on the screen it's not like Lego. You can't just reorganise it and go, well, I have a beat there, a beat there, and a beat there. It has a flow to it. It is organic. And Cameron Bridges just threw it back in his face and said, look, I've reorganised it like Lego. You do the same with the music. You've got half a day. But I can't do that. And that was why they had their falling out. I didn't realise until watching that how close to the wire a score gets finished, especially back in those days. 
this has happened um, in with other people as well. I think something similar happened with uh, Sam Raimi and I. Why have I forgotten his name? Danny Elfman. Uh, Danny Elfman. Yes, something similar happened with them the Spider-Man? on Spider-Man Two. Two. Uh, because Danny Elfman didn't come back for uh, Spider-Man Three because he didn't like working with Sam Raimi. Oh. Didn't give him enough uh, creative freedom and time to do his job properly. Is that why the score for Spider-Man 2 is basically the score for Spider-Man 1 with a Doctor Octopus suite added? I, th- I think so. I, th- I think Danny Elfman had a miserable time doing the score for Spider-Man right. 2, so it makes sense if he was quite lazy with that film. Mm. He, he was. I mean, the, the intro sequence music is exactly the same. Yeah. It's even the same length. It's ridiculous. We're on express elevator to hell. Going down. Movement. Signal's clean. Range 20 meters. There's movement all over the place. They're closing. It's game time. Maybe you haven't been keeping up on current events, we just got our ass kicked, pal. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. My mommy always said there were no monsters. No real ones, but there are. The snafu. That's uh, for folks. Uh, Anyone know what snafu stands for? Situation, uh, situation normal, normal all, all fucked up. up. Yeah, uh, it's, it's an American military phrase used repeatedly in Vietnam because there were so goddamn many of them. Um, this is when they're uh, in the middle of the nest. They don't show up on motion trackers at all. And then an alien goes, nah, and everything goes to shit. And Vasquez and Drake start firing off their fucking guns because they haven't been told why they can't fire off their guns. And all of this seems to b- b- boil down to the fact that no one has been briefed properly on what they're doing. And uh, when it comes down to it, everyone starts dying and being, uh, and being snatched away. And <laughs> Gorman says this classic line to Apon, who's trying desperately to listen to him. I want you to lay down a suppressing fire. And he can't even hear it. It's like, you don't even know what you're talking about at this point. You are going to the... the textbook and going, right, uh, when, when there is a snafu, you lay down a suppressing fire and retreat. And that is basically what you do. If there had been another opponent on the other end of the line, someone who had been repeatedly in combat situations, someone cool-headed, they could have pulled a lot more of them out there than what they ended up with. Yeah, again, it comes down to, to leadership. It's, uh, Apone relies on, on his officer to give him orders, which he then relays to his troops. Mm. who then rely on what he's telling them to get out of a bad situation. And because the orders aren't coming down, it's just effectively nonsense at this point. It's just, as you say, murmurings from the book. Um, the whole thing falls apart and, and everyone gets torn to pieces. If the uh, first link in a steel chain is made of sponge cake, it ain't holding. Well, exactly. I mean, when um, uh, Vasquez and Drake um, fire, uh, start firing their, their uh, rifles again, in, in direct uh, contravention of orders, it's because the, the orders weren't really proper orders. They were just kind of 
they were just oh, don't do this. It wasn't. Yeah, actually, they weren't right. explained. There's no authority it. behind yeah. the order, and an order with no authority isn't an order. It's merely a suggestion, and that's where it all falls apart. And it's Could you simply just give me a favour and not fire off any uh, uh, rounds. What sp- hell are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language. And yeah, they're, they're, they're not told why. Well, that's it, and they're not told what they should do either because they've got what two flamethrowers between the lot of them. Hmm. They, you know, don't fire your guns. Don't fire your, your rifles. And no grenades. What do we do then? Don't fire your rifles. Do this instead. That's, well, that's simple as that. The second they find out about that, pull out. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I mean, yeah. going into that Well, they've that got situation. knives and sharp sticks back in the APC. They <laughs> <laughs> going into that situation not knowing the environment they're about to enter into is just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, the, the, their commanding officer is an idiot because... Nobody just sends troops in willy-nilly into an area that you haven't properly investigated beforehand. And they have the resources to do it. Ah, just that guy is a moron. Just kill him, Ripley. Jesus. The problem they've got is they are, the, the, the squad are professionals. That's what they do. They go into situations where it's not completely known and they are experienced, they're professional, they're a good team. The problem is that Gorman was reassigned to them deliberately was how I figured it he assigned them so deliberately so they all die which means that they can then get a couple of bodies that are infected with aliens back through quarantine and the company gets what it wants if they sent a a, a good officer which is what they should have done um, they'd have kicked ass got out of there and everyone would have been or the the survivors would have been fine which is not the company wanted you're right, Gorman's hand-picked to fuck it up. Absolutely. He's, he's complete, he's a I never dreamed that before. <laughs> Thank you. I completely didn't. I just like... Well, there's oh, there's really no is. other reason he would do it, because uh, the military, they've, they send in this, this crack squad of, of uh, basically special operations troops who Possibly are Possibly known for being overly uh, arrogant and brash. Yeah, they're not going to send them in with a I mean, wet-behind-the-ears idiot like Gorman. Yeah. Unless they've been told, you know, something's come down from higher up. You know, it, it's the only explanation why Gorman would be there and not a more experienced officer. Jesus. He's somebody who would let Burke tell him what to do. Exactly. Yeah. I have a question. Surely they had a black ops team on file that they could just say, "Look, we need some aliens. It's that simple. They fucked our colony, but we need to use them as a weapon. Just be straight up front with them about it." Well, of course, then you've got another movie. Because Ripley would be like, no! <laughs> it's all insidious. And again, it's like, you, Mr. Company Man, all you care about is money. And you've got Burke right there with his stupid collar, just so that you can hate someone very specific. Also, um, Burke actually says why they couldn't do that. Because as soon as you do everything out in the open, you can't patent anything. They need to sneak it back so nobody oh. else knows about it. So that they can get their full percentage. Yeah. Like I said, Cameron has an axe to grind about American big business, very clearly in this. And there was a lot of that in the 80s. It was all like sort of pointing out corporate greed over and over again. Everyone was like, yeah, 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 let me go see another movie about that. Take my money. It's like, brilliant. You are feeding the beast whilst telling it how ugly it is. Blame the Americans. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, when the big business from Brussels starts taking over the world, we'll let you know. But usually it's you guys. We're, we're just jealous because we can't have business with that big. With that big. only big thing in England is the gherkin. <laughs> True story. And that is big. There was somebody in America last week, actually, I can't remember who it was, but he was basically saying that 
the reason for the economic meltdown is because of corporation tax and the only possible way to restart the economy is to have corporations not have to pay any tax at all. <sighs> now that you mention it, Matt, it, it sounds more and more like World War Z. More and more I think about it. It's, it yeah. So then after the snafu, you got the siege. And uh, it, you know, then there were... How many would we have had at this point? Hang on. Gorman, still alive. Burke... Hicks, Hudson, Vasquez, Ripley, Newt. Anyone else? Jesus. I, I think that's it, Technically yeah. speaking, the two on the um, dropship are still alive, though. Oh, no, this is all, they're, they're part of the snafu. Ah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, basically, after the, when they die, it's like, right, now, let's, just, let's have another head count. And they mostly come at night, mostly, which is one of my favourite lines. It's just so laden with... with yeah. I know these creatures they come at night mostly yeah so then there were seven and there's that bit where they're sort of counting up all of the uh, stuff and Newt starts playing with a grenade and he's like don't touch that dangerous honey now if this had been a documentary the second he finished saying that she just started touching the grenade again Would you, I, did you hear what I just said don't touch it it's a grenade yes that's a helmet you can play with that that's fine <laughs> So, yeah, so then there's the extended siege with the turrets uh, again. And, it, it's, it's again, it's ramping up the tension, and they've only got what they've got, uh, got available to them. And it's a kind of an analogue of the bit after the uh, chestbursters first come out and Brett's disappeared, and they're trying to work out what the hell to do. And then Ripley finds out about the whole, the insidious plan of Burke, which doesn't make any sense, and is crazy, and is so fraught with danger. But then again... What do they know about it? That it can, it killed the entire crew of the Nostromo, but I suppose if they send in... that Statistically, it's likely that they would have succeeded, but they don't. So Burke is unfortunately yet another bullet point on the financial sheet himself. And then that's... ...situation and thought a bunch of basically pilots and, and miners and engineers... Yeah. ...died, but one of them managed to kill this thing, so... Yeah. It can't be that bad, surely. They were just a bunch of unprepared, normal people. Whereas this lot, kick-ass Marines, they can cope with anything. So I, I just, but you don't want them to cope with anything. You want them to get face-hugged. Well, this is true, but that's why, that's why the plan was what it was. Um, oh, so, yeah, they sent in Gorman for the, to be the weak yeah, link. It wasn't a case of these people are going to get... They didn't want them to get completely wiped out. Yeah. They wanted... You know, yeah. Just enough ineptitude to make sure that there was a snafu and that they would come back with aliens on board. Yeah, you need them to actually get the job done first before you shoot them out the airlock or whatever it is you're going to do to them. There's some juicy colorless daughters we've got to rescue from their virginity. I, I do wonder if um, this whole plan about going and getting the alien um, was more from Burke than from the company itself. Because if you think about it, in the first one, they programmed Ash to do exactly what they wanted done mm. um, if the company had had its full weight behind this particular expedition surely they would have found some way to get instructions into Bishop yeah yeah because basically Bishop is the whole time and this is, leads on very neatly to Bishop um, you you don't trust him because you're with Ripley you're like oh I've, I've seen what these fucking things can do and he's played by Lance Henriksen who looks and sounds dodgy He's got the deepest voice for a thin white man in the world. <laughs> He's got those great big eyes, and he looks... So, you know, a little pe- like an android? Yeah. Yeah, he, he looks like a, a genuine robot, and, and he, he looks ever so slightly off and, and a bit too haggard, 
and yet he's got an innocence about him. Uh, when you fly, when, when Bishop plays himself out fully, he's 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 affable and he's likable. He's not very likable, but he maintains virtues which are rarely present in fully rounded human beings because of his innocence. I'm thinking that David in uh, Prometheus may display similar traits. Uh, Michael Fassbender. That's not a spoiler, folks. That's been known since the beginning. And again, all of this stuff may be given more depth and extra light when we've seen Prometheus. I can't wait now. I'm really champing at the bit. Are you, <laughs> are you as excited as I am? I'm very excited. I can't be as excited as you, James. It's not possible. <laughs> but I am very excited. Okay. Very so, excited. Speaking of uh, uh, sexual excitement, the face hugger. <laughs> This shares similar lines with Jurassic Park, or Jurassic Park shares similar lines with this, whether that's because of the book written by Michael Crichton um, or Steven Spielberg taking his cues from aliens. You start off terrified of the aliens, the big, crazy creatures, uh, and you were scared of the facehugger in the first film, but they were very much a sort of, they get you, you're done, that's it. But in this, there's the notion of struggling with a facehugger. So when you see the overturned canisters and the absolute silence in the room and Ripley says to, to Newt, we're in trouble. Like, oh, and it pulls all the music out and there's no more ramping up of tension and he's sort of just looking around the place. And when that fucking thing strikes, it's the most terrifying thing in all of these films. This one bit with the two facehuggers is scarier than anything else because suddenly it helps the anti it's not just that the alien might get you and it does whatever it does to you we still don't know what the alien does to you but it's not pleasant we know exactly what the facehugger can do to you and suddenly Ripley and Newt are in danger of that and suddenly James Cameron has you by both balls and you're like okay right, I'm paying close fucking attention and that just, oh that scene is masterful I love this bit I'm I'm just curious. Uh, is anyone here an arachnophobe? Yep. Yes. Because I feel like that scene specifically uh, plays on people's fear of spiders because of and the scorpions. way the uh, the facehuggers move. It's yeah. it's very spider-like, and the way they strike as well. If you've ever seen tarantulas mm. um, strike their prey in nature, they have that kind of outstretched arms like grab onto the prey, much yeah. like the way the facehuggers do to your face. Oh, it's the um, worst as- aspect, actually, now that you mention it, of spiders, scorpions, and snakes, snakes. which always go for the goddamn yeah. face as well. Yeah. And that boom! Because the there's tail is bit, very much like a coiled muscle, like a snake absolutely. as well. There's one bit where it crawls along, you see the, 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 the actual body of the facehugger, which is exactly like a spider, and then it cuts back, and then you've got um, just the tail disappearing. It just looks exactly like a, a snake. It's bloody horrifying. Absolutely mm. awful. And it's also, it's like, uh, this, especially when it starts coming up for Newt, the second one, it's like this horrible, creeping old man's hand, and it brings back this nature of rape, like they're about to be raped in the face by an organism that is basically a grasping, thrusting hand with a phallus in the inside and a strangling tail. It's, oh... Uh, remember, of course, in the first one, the facehuggers don't move. I mean, it, the, this one facehugger springs out from the egg, and that's it. Basically, apart from being on cane, it's dead. So it's it's kind of like, right, well, fear of, of that over with. But suddenly, this thing is terrifying. And it's, it's like, as I said, Jurassic Park, you've been scared of the T-Rex the whole time. Suddenly, Spielberg brings up the raptors, and it darts up to 11. Well, that's great. 
That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? Where's the real pretty shit now, man? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. It's all like sort of a, a downhill ride after this point, and that is um, what she said. No, and that is absolutely a good thing because basically after this point, it doesn't stop moving. It only stops moving when Ripley pauses and the tension is ramped up even higher. So it's it's this is the crest of the uh, the the big one for the roller coaster on this one with the escape and uh, Paul Hudson. I mean, okay, we can briefly talk about uh, our other characters here. Hudson is a dog. This guy throughout the whole film is barking really, really loudly and he wears every emotion he has on his sleeve and uh, he's perfectly exemplary of the arrogance of the Marines and without him, the film would feel that much emptier. It's not a fantastic performance from Bill Paxton but he's very, very watchable and funny and he's also cut... He is the nerd of the group. He's the tech head. I was going to say, it's the first time watching it uh, last night that it's really struck me because I've seen this film several times in the past but he is he's a geek he's the ADD kid with all the electronics knowledge and he's not as um, marine like if you like as the rest of them he you know he doesn't follow the orders and he doesn't um, you know do all the saluting and everything and quite frankly I, I was sat there wondering how he got to this point that bit where um, uh, a pwn calls him out and Get over here. And I'm, Hudson, come here. Why is he still in the squad? Surely they'd have kicked him out months ago. Here's how you get out of this chicken shit outfit. Keep talking. Um, Vasquez, Jeanette Goldstein, who turned up again in Terminator 2. And does anyone remember her in Titanic? Yeah, Je- Jeanette Goldstein in Titanic uh, is an uh, Irish mother in that. She reads her children a story about Tirnanog. Uh, and she stabs a dude in the face in T2. <laughs> She, she's basically a prototype Mich- Michelle Rodriguez. What a terrible thing to say. That is something else that I said last night. What a terrible thing to say about both hard-working actresses. <laughs> but I, every, time, every time I watch that, I keep thinking, if they ever remade this movie, that is the only person they could logically get to replay, uh, to, yeah. to play that role. Yep, so, but Michelle, we've got this role. She's this really tough marine girl. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I, I've done that one before. Several times, you may have noticed. Even in Machete, uh, Michelle Rodriguez is just Michelle Rodriguez. Mm. It, she she's the uh, the female version of uh, it Michael Cera because he's just the same character in every film that he's ever in. <laughs> I think both would take issue with that, but yeah, <laughs> I, I see what you're saying on both actually because they, they they don't stretch themselves. Neither does Jack Nicholson. Also, Are they true. ever going to let her do a film where she gets to wear a dress? She's yeah. hot. She's hot nonetheless. Michelle Rodriguez should be in a bodice ripper. <laughs> um, Hicks uh, and Michael Bean pretty much just doing Kyle Reese but not mental yeah that's exactly what I was thinking last night <laughs> he's, he's if, if this was a parallel universe where that particular war didn't happen and Kyle Reese just got to be born and grow up and join the military like any normal person if that doesn't sound completely weird then <laughs> it, it would be the same guy and in it's, The Abyss he's like Kyle Reese and, and mental and more mental but, way worse and uh, in The Rock he's more like Hicks but he's a bit older so what we're essentially saying here 
<laughs> Michael Bean does Bain not exactly act. have a range. But he's really good at the, the military roles he plays. And, and no, Hicks is a likeable guy, and he's got that twinkle in his eye, and he's got that slight, I'm not sure if I trust you thing, and then you realise that you should totally have trusted him from the beginning, much like Bishop. Um, do you know who Michael Bean replaced uh, to the point where it was actually almost about to start filming? James Remar. Yeah. Harry in Dexter. I can't even imagine that film. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You actually see and James Remar in when they're entering the, the hive. Seriously? It's actually James Remar's back, not Michael. Wow. Because they'd already filmed certain bits of it. So, but so they literally had stuff. armor, so he looks exactly the same. Yeah. Actually, interestingly enough, on the armor, they gave the actors their, all of their body armor and said, just go, go nuts on it, decorate it uh, however you like. And, of course, Michael Bean, being the only one who didn't actually get to personalize his armor, ended up with a whopping great heart on his chest <laughs> with a padlock on it. It's like, yeah, please shoot me right there. Thanks, James. <laughs> uh, anyone else notice that the bishop mentioned he was a Hyperdyne model? Kind of yep. like the Cyberdyne? Cyberdyne, yeah. yeah. Oh, dear. Yep. Also, they have um, phase plasma rifles. Oh, yeah. I, they I don't mention the range, but... Probably about 40 watts. Yeah. <laughs> also, when the dropship goes into the atmosphere, I, I only noticed this uh, before, it, it's so poorly... Mo- that is one of the only bits of ropey model work in the entire thing. It's like it's going through the clouds, and there's a sort of like wobbly little model in the front there. It looks like Falcor in Neverending Story. <laughs> <laughs> you expect Ripley to be on the tip of the nose, going "Yeah!" <laughs> five by five. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, as we mentioned in the uh, Batman episode, most of the uh, hive stuff and everything inside the actual complex was filmed in Battersea Power Station. This is why it looks so absolutely authentic, because it was actually a real station and a real place. It feels less like a set as a result. And there's a lot of uh, recurring themes of wetness and cold and ruin and despair. It's like the second that these alien creatures get in, um, the notion of anything that humans hold onto which combats despair, you know, art or love, just sort of goes out the window and it all becomes this desperate survival scramble. Not that there was much of that before when the colonists were there anyway. It kind of has like an artificial swamp feel to it, mm. if that makes sense. Like, it, it, it's kind of this combination of... We, we talked about this on the previous film, the combination of organic and artificial. And it, it, it feels like... You know the way swamps are, where it's very hard to see very far in front of you. Mm. There's all sorts of dangly things all around you. It's very damp, it's very dark... There is loads of water and like resources you could use, but it's all funny. And if you drink the water, you might be sick because it's been <laughs> contaminated and stuff like that. It's all chaotic and muggy and grubby and disgusting looking. Yeah. Oh, actually, one thing I wanted to mention: when it, there's a shot of st- when they're on the siege and they've uh, sort of done a head count and they're sort of trying to work it out just before the turret guns bit, there's a shot of the station, the window, I believe, and the shutters are slowly going down. And it looks a little like, and I believe they've done the same uh, trick with it, like a shot in Alien where to show, because they didn't have CGI or chroma key in, in such a good... Yeah, they didn't have CGI or chroma key in the same way back in the day. To show Lambert walking around in the cockpit of a model, which is obviously many, many times too small to put a human in, they put a a monitor on the inside of the model and showed Veronica Cartwright wandering around behind it. And that is just brilliant. 
in terms of corner cutting, and I think they did it as well in this. Watch out the next time you're watching Alien, you'll spot that. At some point, someone gets a printout uh, in the uh, film, and it's on a goddamn daisy wheel piece of paper. <laughs> like, it's good to know that they went back to that after hundreds of years of not needing it. <laughs> you didn't think, folks, that we would be beyond fucking daisy wheels in 200 years' time? They were the height of technology! Oh, and the other thing uh, regarding tech was uh, the APC itself. It was actually a tug from an airport, uh, which I think it weighed something like 70 tonnes, and they took out 35 tonnes worth of stuff, so it was basically hollow inside, and you could get maybe two or three people in there, uh, but it was so heavy that the most of the set, and well, most of Battersea Power Station, couldn't actually support it. And there's a bit... Uh, where the APC comes barreling down the hall and they'd arranged cameras in front of it so that they could film it coming towards the camera. And Cameron, as a last-minute thing, said, just get the camera guys out of the way there, just in case. And the guys got out of the way and the APC ploughed through the cameras and, and crushed through the wall. Basically, it would have killed all of the cameramen had he not moved them out of the way because the brakes failed. So that thing was death on wheels but it also looks extremely solid and awesome. Yeah. Fatality. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they had to cut the roof off it um, for filming because uh, originally it had, a, it had a solid roof, um, mm. but it kept filling it with smoke when they yes, were filming the escape and people were fire. starting to choke and uh, there was a severe danger of uh, <laughs> serious injury, so they had to That's chop the roof. roof off the top. Yeah. Uh, so the smoke would get out. Uh, one question Sharon asked, when uh, Bishop got into that big pipe... Why was he breathing so hard? Why was he breathing at all? He's a robot. Yes, a but robot, Lance is Hendrickson he? isn't. Uh, <laughs> so. But they, they could just have taken the breathing out of the sound. Oh, true. Yeah, true. I prefer the term an official person myself. Well, as I understood it, they're not, they're not robots as such. They're, they're effectively artificial biological creatures. Mm. So they they have lungs, they have digestive systems and all the rest of it, uh, circulatory system, sorry, etc. Same as a human would do. So their their heart rate would elevate as they did as they exerted themselves. Yeah. My theory they just was exerted themselves a lot more than a human would. My theory was that they've been programmed to do everything that a human could to make them as close to well, basically, so that they wouldn't end up in the uncanny valley. And it's like Bishop, do you know why I hate you? You don't breathe. <laughs> Uh, also, special mention must be here for the M41A pulse rifle, which for the longest time was my favourite weapon in a movie ever. It is awesome. Possibly excluding the uh, uh, lightsaber. It's made with... Uh, anyone know how they put this together? It's a Tommy gun. Yep. With, uh, with an artificial shroud around it. Yep. And uh, a Remington 870 shotgun chopped off. Yep. Uh, with a, a Franchi Spaz 12 foregrip. Stuck yes! On the grenade launcher. You know your guns. It uh, fires 10mm case of this ammunition, which means when Ripley <laughs> loads it, it would need a 95 centimetre long magazine to fit in. Which oh, doesn't. good point. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe it puts them side by side? <laughs> uh, yeah, so th there's that. But yeah, it's, it's got this real heft to it. And obviously it's the, the hero weapon they use at the front. It's, it's really meaty. And it's got this kind of... Well, I'll play the sound effect now, but it goes... <laughs> when it actually fires off in it. They spent, I think Cameron spent a day working uh, out how to get the perfect sound for that particular uh, gun. And it's, it's classic. So if you, if you ever played Alien vs. Predator on the PC or indeed the more recent uh, Xbox 360 PS3 version, um, 
I think it was on PC as well uh, recently. That that and the motion tracker kind of complete the experience and make it you know more fun to actually play and, and get again it's sort of sensory memory there firing up. The, the smart rifle is also pretty cool. Um, mm, yeah. With that, with that, that harness it's mounted on, with, uh, which is basically a Steadicam rig. Yes, I was going to say. So it, it kind of takes the weight out, so it's, it's really kind of floaty look to it. That has a similar sound to the Pulse rifle. Um, it, it's different. It's a bit slower and a bit deeper, but it, it, it's a, effectively the same basic sound. Um, mm. But, yeah, it, it's really cool. When I, when I, was, a, when I was a teenager, it was exactly the kind of thing that, that I liked in films. And uh, yeah. I think... Uh, that was a fairly deliberate uh, point with all of the design of the military stuff. They just wanted to get all the teenage boys to go, this is the most awesome thing ever! And it and worked. it totally worked. <laughs> Question, you might be able to verify this one. When she says to Hicks that her name's Ellen, is that the first time she actually ever says her name? Because I think she's just Ripley, and at best, Ripley E before then. I think it might be, actually. There is one bit I've put a note down here as well where um, Ripley talks about uh, Burke's plan and, and then he could jettison the bodies and make up any story he liked. Um, isn't that what they do for Alien 3? <laughs> <laughs> So they, they, they escape, and then there's that bit where Newt slips away from her, and she holds it back. And it, it seems like it's almost like she's not panicking enough at that point. But then when Sigourney really unleashes, where when Newt's been snatched away properly this time, it's everything about what she's lost and everything about who she's lost all comes up in this one scene of hysteria, and it's. It's fantastic from Sigourney. Uh, you've, I've really got to hand it to Sigourney Weaver for this one. She threw herself into this part. She did not just turn up, get paid her, what was it, one million dollars? Yeah, one million dollars. One million, and just, you know, give a half assed performance. She earns that one million dollars. One twenty-fourth the amount that Arnold Schwarzenegger got paid for Batman and Robin. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So then you get the scene where she tools up uh, on the, uh, the second dropship and goes in to find Newt. And again, this, there really hadn't been before then. And frankly, any afterwards were going to be influenced by this. Just really strong, militaristic, but also very maternal females in cinema. You've got oh, Sarah Connor. James yeah, Sarah Connor again, um, very, very much influenced by uh, James Cameron's version of Ripley. So yeah, Cameron he has been responsible for um, putting forth more than just your average representation and depiction of strong women in cinema. It's also nice that Ripley isn't played as for sex appeal as well mm. um, in this film. So often, like there are loads and loads of strong female characters, but um, like we were talking about the Avengers a while ago, mm. and while Black Widow is a strong female character, she is most definitely played up for sex appeal. And it's interesting that, you know, um, Sigourney Weevy, uh, Weevy, Sigourney Weaver is like visibly sweating. She's like, um, her hair's a mess. She's got grime all over her face by the end of the movie. It, she's not a sexy woman being badass. She's mm. a tough woman in a bad situation, and she looks like she's in a bad situation, but she's coping well 
despite that. Well, she's coping well, but it's always just on this sort of hair's thread. Like, you could see that yeah. if she allowed herself to, she'd just break down. So, actually, yes, when she finds the locating device, and it would appear that Newt is absolutely gone and, and, and gone from her, she breaks down. And it's like that's what she's been holding off all this time. So she has to draw herself back up again when Newt starts screaming. And again, that old man's hand, like Herman from Family Guy, starts crawling out of the pod. Ripley finds Newt, and then they meet the Queen. And again, you got to question why she's breathing, because we've not seen the aliens really breathing before this, but the Queen sort of... <laughs> Gives a that place. <laughs> really terrifying that feeling. That me right then. <laughs> of, of size and weight and like, like she's this, this enormous organism and she's not just breathing, she's not just there, she's fucking furious that Ripley's even there in her presence. And that's like, <laughs> kind of thing going on. And it's like her teeth are made of glass or diamond or something the, the diamond thing kind of sort of plays into the notion that she's this sort of weird perfect organism not perfect by human standards but perfect for the environment with which she creates around herself and the queen is one of all time greatest monsters of cinema I mean she's kind of like if you look at her under full lighting like that professional lighting guy was trying to do. She looked like this weird, spindly, totally top-heavy creature, which actually, if you just sort of ran 30 paces in front of it, you could probably keep ahead of it. You know, no, no real issues, and it would be basically fucked. But in that confined space, in the dark, you know, in her domain, in her lair, she is fucking terrifying. I also like um, when you're first introduced to the Queen... Uh, you're not sure if she has like the terror, terrifying maw that mm. the other aliens have. It's just like that weird, almost like sucker-like shape. But then, of course, the mouth comes down. Uh, mm. this, <laughs> this weird carapace, and then you see these this huge jaw filled with teeth. Uh, it's more scary than any any weapon that the. Um, aliens have on them because it's just so the teeth are, so, are almost like knives because the aliens actually have like the way their teeth are designed they have like incisors and then canines yeah. on the side but her mouth is just all canines they're all knives at, that could just rip you to shreds it's terrifying everyone looking at that yes okay that picture is the Jabberwock from Lewis Carroll's Alice through the looking glass was this one? I believe so, yes. Lewis Carroll created this, and the image of the Jabberwock pervades the alien, but very specifically in the Queen. If you if you look at a picture, I'm going to stick a picture of this on the um, on the forum. But uh, yeah, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. But when she is searching for Newt on the ship, and she's snatching up the um, the panels, and she becomes the monster from all of our childhood nightmares, giant fanged beast in the dark. It, it, it knocks the alien feel up to a, a new level. When the Queen gestures to Ripley to just go, after Ripley just let off a few flames to say, "Look, you know what I can do. I know what I can do. I'm just going to go now." And then the egg opens. It's up in the air as to whether the Queen bade that actually happen. But either way, Ripley's little cock of the head is like, well, what the fuck is that? 
And, and then it's kind of like, everything about me cannot allow you to carry on after what you've fucking done. So everything she does after that is pure act of revenge, and it's to get rid of the nightmares, and it's to fight back against the creatures. Because she's not really had the chance to kill any aliens until now. And she is out for fucking blood at this point. Because they've taken everything, not only from her, but from Newt. It's a great scene as well, because she's been living in absolute terror of the the image of these creatures Mm. for ages. And I know she was brave, and she was strong in the first Alien movie, but nobody goes through a situation like that and not suffer severe trauma. Like, I, I totally understand why she's having nightmares and waking up every morning covered in sweat. It, it was a horrible experience. So this scene is almost like... it's. Uh, uh, what do they refer to it in psychology when um, uh, you're forced to confront your fear... Um, in a way, yeah. So it's all—it's almost like that, where she's just like, right. Well, fuck you, alien. I'm—I'm I'm the boss here. You're not going to scare me anymore. I'm going. You should fear me. I'm going to put you in your place. Uh, it's just a—you know—a great reversal. Mm. It's she—she she gets the opportunity to um, to take control of her deepest fear and her her nightmares in a way that you know most people wouldn't get to do she's she's suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome it would appear um uh, towards the beginning of it and part of the therapy um sometimes for uh, post-traumatic stress is to because your brain gets locked into a pattern of reliving the events that have caused the the trauma and not reaching a conclusion so being able to go through those events again but reach the conclusion that she wants to reach would be like a really key way of of breaking that pattern for her and and yes it does give her the opportunity to then move away from that potentially without the nightmares and then to counterpoint that you've got the ultimate matriarch that she's going up against uh effectively ripley ripley situation is that the queen by extension her species took Ripley's daughter away from her and then Ripley got another daughter this species took the parents away from her and then this species took Newt away from Ripley again so it is Ripley clawing back the ties to her motherhood and then the Queen has to witness Ripley tearing apart her babies and then in her you know, mind justifiably goes right, fuck this you are not getting away clean and so she, she chases her and when she gets up onto the ship and, and, and commits this act of vengeance, it's, it's like she's just evening the odds at this stage. Not that the Queen is relatable, but, it's, but they're both driven by an immense uh, maternal force. And then you get that showdown where, much like at the uh, end of Alien, Ripley makes herself as the creature, gets into the power loader like she gets into the spacesuit, and uh, takes it on hand-to-hand. Um, it, it's such a, just a feeling of a, like you've gotten through all of this roller coaster, and then this is like the triple spiral at the end. It's like get away from her, you bitch. Best line in the film. Best line in the world. Best line in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, not I actually, not, I actually, not my daughter, you bitch, if you will. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. yeah. We said that yeah. exact same thing in uh, when we were doing Harry Potter. That that. It, it hits exactly the same note. When when she uh, said, get away from her, you bitch, I, uh, when I was watching it tonight, I actually cheered. I went, woohoo! Go, Ripley. 
when I read the uh, novelization, because I was kind of well into aliens in the 90s, um, the line is, get away from her, you. <laughs> I don't know if that's because they just didn't want any naughty words in a book where people get eviscerated left, right and center. Um, but uh, yeah, get away from her, you. And I think that's... Um, I, I order. Oh, you. <laughs> oh, oh, you. You queen, you. You aren't queen. <laughs> I think in the TV version, it's just like, get away from her. And then it cuts to the queen going... I was like, oh, well, that kind of destroyed a fantastic line. Get away from her. Oh, you. <laughs> but this is what we had to endure. This is how I first saw Aliens, the TV version, the cut-down version. But, I mean, you know, we, we had to because I was 12 and had no access to videos. I imagine a lot of the scenes in the TV version looked pretty rubbish because of the amount of cutting and editing mm. they'd have to do. That yeah. first encounter of the Marines, you know, the bit where everyone gets killed, the snuff. must have been terrible. Mm. Terrible. Because uh, every second somebody gets acid burning their face, gets something ripped off or something like that. So how do you even put that scene on TV? Why even bother? Yeah. Oh, well. So then you've got Ripley in the power loader versus the Queen, and it's this fantastic kind of clash of the Titans thing. And they really... They, they kind of spin it out. It's not just this sort of like quick, quick, bang, 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 and then, and then down. It's not rock'em, sock'em robots. It actually it feels uh, physical. And again, it's all down to the, the fantastic model work and Sigourney Weaver really throwing herself into that. When, when the Queen's sort of slamming her with her tail and then you know, shoving that second maw in there, she screams and it, it just feels like this full-throated thing and she's got this real intensity in her eyes. And then when it goes you know, toppling over, anyone else notice that the, queen, the tip of the Queen's tail gets knocked off when they fall into the airlock? I yeah, I yeah. saw that. I, yeah. I wonder if they broke the model. <laughs> it, very lightly very possible but, uh, but yeah and then you get that bit of music by James Horner the, the Bishop's Countdown music which you'll remember from trailer after trailer after trailer and the only reason I didn't play it earlier for the uh, bit where they get away from the reactor when it explodes was so I could play it now Crescendo, and then she's out and gone, and it mirrors the end of Alien in in that perfect kind of way. Uh, only Ripley's sort of just hanging on to her arm, and it's like she's going to break in two at this point. It just it ramps up everything that happened in Alien. Overall, the film is not as subtle as Alien. I will give you that. The film is not as I would say it's not as crafted, but everything about it looks like they they fought tooth and nail to get it the way it was, and they don't just sort of churn it out and they aren't doing it in a half-fast way. I'd say that both films are exceptionally accomplished at what they were both trying to do. It's, it's a I fantastic think, pairing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think one of Alien's uh, great virtues is it isn't just a straight remake of the first one, mm. which so many sequels are. 
um, Ghostbusters 2 is a good movie, but it is kind of just a remake of the events of the first Ghostbusters movie in a slight told in a slightly different way. Um, and just saw Men in Black 2, and it was not only just a retread of everything that happened in the first one, with like Ace Ventura 2 when Nature Calls, just like, con- like referencing the same jokes again, but it was also fuck boring as well. Yeah. That's and a new but- phrase. <laughs> but they, but they, they, but they wisely decided. Look, we're not going to be able to replicate um, the same tone and feel of the first movie and get the same reaction from audiences. Mm. So let's make a different movie, uh, a movie that's loyal to what made the first film great, but also has a different flavour, a different feel, and you know, bring something new to the table which so many sequels don't do. Like Back to the Future 2, like The Two Towers, uh, like The Bourne Supremacy, it expands the world and tells you that, okay, right, you've had a a, a focus view in the first one just to get you into this. Now let's just broaden the scope and bring in more elements. I think that it being a pairing is very important because without Alien, Aliens would not be nearly as terrifying, I don't think. Mm. Because you you start off... seeing what one of these things can do. Mm. And if you had just cut straight to seeing half a dozen of them you know, at the same time, uh, yes, that is still terrifying. Obviously, that's still terrifying. But it's all the more affecting because you have already seen, you know, it, it, it's that much more because you're taking what you already know, which is already bad, and then multiplying it by, you know, however many you've got on the on the screen at that time. So it's I don't know. I, I, I think I think that it being a pairing is is a very good point and very important one. Mm. Like I said, depending on how good Prometheus is, I might just go right new trilogy. It's this until a sequel to Prometheus comes along. Inevitably, if it does well, it will. The only thing I would say is that the um, the power loader is a, a massively impractical device. Yeah, it's compared to a forklift, for instance, it's rubbish. You can't lift things as high. It clearly overbalances very easily. It doesn't look like you can bend your knees. Yeah, it looks cool, whole... and it's awesome for fighting giant alien queens. <laughs> but it's kind of rubbish for moving stuff around in a, in a, in a hangar bay. Um, so, uh, however, it, it is a very cool bit of kit. Mm. And there's something um, kind of gun, like, uh, like early Gundam about it, like uh, the Japanese fighting robots. So, yeah, I believe this film did very, very well in Japan, possibly as a result. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of uh, the, the, the armored exoskeleton, which um, has been in science fiction for a long time. Mm. Um, certainly back to the book Starship Troopers, which is fift- late 50s, I think. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's, it's a much more utilitarian. It's not a military piece of kit. It's very much like a the one in Avatar. Yeah, but um, it uh, it does the job. It does fulfills the role in the film, but yeah, massively impractical. And at the very, very end, the thing that uh, Newt says about "Are we going to sleep? Can we dream?" and I think we both can is. A fantastic moment for you to resolve this story. The notion being that, um, that you know, Newt and Ripley were torn to pieces and have managed to pull themselves back together with each other's help and with Hicks and Bishop. And this notion that if they hadn't been able to do it in quite this same way, then it doesn't matter that they still lived. 
that they would still wake up screaming and sweating and they would never the rest of their lives would be haunted by this but this notion that they've actually done what they needed to do and they've put this, these fears to rest is so important which is again why Alien 3 is so frustrating but again didn't happen in, in many realities didn't happen and then there's that wonderful bit the last 20 seconds or so where uh, after the credits where uh, did you all turn it up and listen very carefully I did yes, uh, yes. I remember. so you heard that mm-hmm. indeed it's a face hugger scuttling. That's almost like Cameron gave whoever decided to kill Newton Hicks and to do that in Alien 3 the gun and was then surprised when they used it. It's like, sequel bait? You don't want to put a sequel to this film, really. It Just let him rest, let him sleep. But no. I wonder whether it was James Cameron's decision or an executive's decision to do that. Oh, put a face hugger in there. It's not the first time that no. executives have interfered. It's a fantastic moment when she's banging on the window and screaming at the top of her voice, and then you cut to outside the window and you can barely hear her. And the, the, the hammering the window with the chair is totally ineffective. And it's that, you know, again, ramping up the tension and sort of the, the, the soundscape and the, the sound effects at that point. Fantastic. It's also very metaphoric. Mm. For the fact that she's not being heard, they've ostensibly yep. got cameras and microphones yeah, yeah. and all sorts in that room. You know, we should be able to observe you. You'll be safe at all times, and then they can't see a thing or hear. Yeah, when they don't want to. Um, but anyway, there's this one bit where the facehugger has to go across the floor and then jump up at her. Uh, but for some reason, they couldn't get the mechanism to work. They could get it to go in reverse. They could get it to go downwards. So what they did was they took that single frame where the facehugger goes downwards and reversed it. So basically, between running on the floor and then jumping onto her face, there's like a single frame where the facehugger is actually going in reverse and it's going upwards. And for that one frame, the water which is raining down is going upwards. Uh, Cameron was sort of like, oh, I don't know if we can do this. And it was like, dude, no one's going to notice. This was way before DVD. And you can't even really see it on, on Blu-ray. So it's just, if they hadn't told me it was there, I, I wouldn't have known. It's just, it's, but it's like that, that super fast cut. So it's like, it's on her in a second. And you're not thinking about the frames. But it's just a, a neat little bit of, again, stuff. I love the fact that when they worked with models, they had to work around shit like this. And the problem with computers is that ultimately, if it gets fucked up, you just go, right, just, I don't know, this is oversimplification of an extremely complex situation, but you can actually isolate individual issues and fix them rather than trying to ha- find a workaround, which, I don't know, I think has somehow killed a little bit of the um, uh, improvisation of cinema and filmmaking. I think that's possibly what Neil means when he talks about how much he loves uh, practical effects. It's the, the, the discipline behind it and the ability to work around the flaws. Well, limitations make you more creative and mm. find more creative solutions to problems. But the, prob- the problem with CGI is they remove limitations. Suddenly you can do whatever the hell you want. So, yeah. When you say necessity is the mother of invention, and uh, yeah. that is utterly removed, well, not utterly, but largely removed with CGI because you can have whatever explosions you want interesting enough they've never really gone for CGI aliens in all of this series they've actually gone for practical even the bits which look like they're CGI in Alien 3 are actually mostly a rod puppet on chroma key 
it just it doesn't look right. And they, they do experiment at times with some, some very early basic CG, but this was before Jurassic Park, and they were by no means as high-profile a production team as Industrial Light and Magic. So, yeah, we'll talk about that when we do Alien 3. But most of the time, the aliens have been absolutely solid in the series. Do you think that's because they don't have eyes? Oh, no, wait, that can't be uh, the reason, because in Alien Resurrection, they have the dumb one that looks crap that has eyes. Um, I was good. I was gonna say. No, that was that, practical as well. Yeah, I was gonna say that um, because it they don't have eyes. It, there's not that kind of oh, that doesn't look quite right. natural. That yeah. because a lot of animals, um, you, you're you, you're looking at their eyes to mm. get a sense of their character and personality. And when they're practical, there's always that sense that they're kind of dead. Um, but with, because the aliens don't have eyes and, and they're completely soulless, the kind of yeah. practical effects kind of work. Um, until we get to Alien Resurrection, where we get to that shitty one. But never mind. I believe it's totally feasible to do a really good CG xenomorph. But actually, I think we're going to talk about this possibly in the next few weeks. I am fucking tired of aliens. I think uh, with these six films, we've had enough of them. Frankly. And I'm really interested in, in sort of resolving how this happened regarding the space jockeys. But I don't know how much they, more they can do with this. We'll talk about that later. But, I mean, aside from lots and lots of aliens, like thousands, and even then you've got to still work on a relatively small scale. Technically, did they not already do thousands of aliens in... Um is it AVP, where they have that scene where all yeah. the aliens Yeah, for like a second, but I mean oh, yes, like something that will actually drive the narrative of the, of the film. I mean, what, what can they do? Uh, we've, Alien vs. Predator Requiem is perfectly exemplary of the fact that the, the standard horror movie motifs for Alien and Predator now don't work, because you know everything about them as creatures. They're just going through the motions, like uh, Halloween 8. You don't care. But you, you can also, you can call them out on it if... if it, the, they have the aliens do something that is completely out of... Alien to them? Character, for want of a better word, yes, alien to them. Um, then you, you know, you can go, no, that, uh, I don't think don't, I don't think she'd do that. I'd no. like to see a David Attenborough-style documentary of the alien life cycle. <laughs> like, they <laughs> film it film it like a serious documentary. Oh, God. Do you think found footage style would be good? Ooh. Mm. It's a way of bringing it back to its basic roots and doing an inexpensive yeah, I, one. I, as people may know, I do like my found footage hmm. um, movie, so but that would be really interesting, actually. It'd have to be more than just that. Monsters, for example, has a really good subtext to it. Yes, I, yeah. love, I love Monsters. That is an absolutely fantastic movie. Okay. Well, you know what? We'll discuss this on the movies where we've got fuck all else to discuss. <laughs> right, okay. So, we will leave Ripley and Newt at the end of the arc in many, many different universes, and they got home and everything was fine, and Ripley they and... They lived happily ever after. They didn't live happily ever after. There were some problems. Ripley had to explain a lot of shit that happened. But um, she got a better job as a better forklift driver? I don't know. She got compensated by the company. Or more likely, the company had them both assassinated because they knew secrets they weren't supposed to know. Or but, uh, Ripley busted the company fucking wide open like Sarah goddamn Connor. Yes. Something more like T2 happened in the, the real Aliens sequel. And it was directed by James Cameron. But we'll never know because we don't live in a parallel reality. <laughs> anyway, Alien 3 happened. We'll talk to you about that soon. But next week, we're going to talk about Prometheus. Oh, yeah.
Thank you very much to all my guests for sticking around for, oh, what's this been now? 8, 9, 10, 11, 3 hours 15. Bloody hell. Sorry, Alex. You are troopers, starship troopers, let me say. Oh, God. Thank you very much to Josh Garrity from Kennewins. Thank you very much for having me. Leah Haydu of Gamerdook. Thank you. Matt Ramsey of Dorktunes. Thank you. James Midgemeister Perkins of Geekwood. Thank you very much. And Sharon Shaw of Gonzo Planet. Thank you. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to Digital Gonzo. I've been Alex Shaw. And the search for our beginning could lead to our end. He bums deep blows. And it, it went from... I can't say he bums it. I was going really technical there, and suddenly <laughs> this weird midgism. <laughs> no offense, James. I'm so sorry. Okay, right. There's also the lingering shot of her hand resting on her breast, where um, I say breast. What I mean is breast, as in breast bone, but when I say breast, it's not like boob. There's also. <laughs> Not overly professional. <laughs> Ladies have boobs. I don't know if you guys knew that. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> you just oh. blew his mind. <laughs> he was smashed, shattered his innocence there. Oh. That's what I do. You know. Now I roll. You know we have boobs and play video games? That's <laughs> true. I'm looking at him right now. <laughs> I. Oh. Uh, okay. We're going to get accused of corruption of the young, no, no. Uh, of the face hugger. And Sharon, you said yesterday it's lucky that Sigourney Weaver had long bony fingers and not big fat sausages. <laughs> we, you you know, added the big just, fat sausages, but yes. That's what she said. Serious heads, folks. Serious. <laughs> it wasn't my fault that time. <laughs> I had nothing I, to do with that. I'm telling myself off at this point. Good. It, it's it's interesting because. Um, because uh, she's own because because of um, the uh, sorry I'm just say something resembling anything. <laughs> I'll start again. Okay. And they didn't listen to Sigourney Weaver, who said that the idea of AVP was stupid, and they made those, and they were stupid. <laughs> I just made a pig okay. noise. You just snorted. <laughs> <laughs> stupid. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything, but yeah. Oh, I was. Okay, hang on. I won't go back there. Okay. Um, but again, that's the the, um, the them getting the uh, bollocks. I'm still here. I'm still here. Josh. Oh, lost combine. Josh. No. Combine. No. Combine. God damn you. Just one by one, every person in the podcast is disconnected. <laughs> oh God, they found us. Game over, man. Game over. Hey, fuck it up. On Skype. No one. Joshua ain't dead, man. His life signs are real low, but he ain't dead. <laughs> okay, oh. I'm putting the Gatorade down now. Oh, while we're on the subject of that, I have an interesting anecdote about my brother. Okay, so there was. We set up this uh, log fire in the front room, you know, chimney, what have you, log fire. And my dad, th- my brother was very young at the time, like uh, four years old. And my dad tells my brother, okay, whatever you do, don't go anywhere near the fire, don't touch the fire, it's very hot, you'll get hurt. What's the first thing my brother does? He sticks his hand in the fire. And he goes, ow, oh, it hurts, it hurts. He goes upstairs, you know, you know, puts it underwater for however long. Comes back downstairs, sticks his hand back in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I love my brother. 
He's uh, an interesting. Does he still character. have all his limbs? He's a bit of a rock star, which he, you know, plays for a band and he does all sorts of crazy stuff. But with does when he set you... things on fire sometimes? <laughs> sometimes. Um, <laughs> I, I would like Is to say he was very young, but still an idiot. Leah, you, you're smiling and waving at who? Oh, right, you were. Sm- you were. Uh, Matt was back. You. Oh, I see. Occasionally, you should probably read the chat in the box. It's not a complicated that, story, to be that fair. That was an occasion. <laughs> Relatively How many short more times do I have to do it than that to make it occasional? <laughs> anyway. Oh, we've lost Sharon. She's going to shriek again. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I am pretty hilarious. I'm. I'm <laughs> you can't hear this, but she is caterwauling with laughter. <laughs> <laughs> it's bleeding into your mic now. <laughs> it's almost more hilarious I can hear. <laughs> it sounds like she's like rolling all over the floor. Joker toxin. It's the only explanation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to see. A nice big smile. Okay, we're back together again. Is there a motion tracker beeping somewhere? Did I imagine that? This is the most ill-coordinated podcast ever. I am Gorman at this point. I need to be rid. Okay, you should know better. Lay down a suppressing fire, and it dials it up to ten, and it dials it up to (laughs) eleven. It's a little bit higher. (laughs) One higher, in fact. Well, it's one louder. One louder. One louder. (laughs) Don't, don't touch that. Well, no, don't even point. You've had enough on that one. <laughs> <laughs> don't make me laugh again. <laughs> yeah, I, I started to ask and then I got cut off. Are you okay? <laughs> yes, I'm fine. Occasionally, I, I have this really weird sense of humour. A lot of the time, it's just not at all twitched by anything. And then something will just take me as ridiculously absurd and I can't stop laughing. What was it that actually made you laugh? Time. It was off. it was just what Matt said about it's not a complicated story. <laughs> For some reason, that just struck me as being the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, I am incredibly amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly so. Yeah. You sound like Noel Coward at that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The hiding in the worst place of all is probably the worst tagline, to be honest. <laughs> is it? Is it the butt? <laughs> I was going to say the back of the ball, but um, 